Godzilla. I get shot into space for a while, and Pink Floyd and Mushroom Head try to start their own podcast to replace us. Awkward is putting it lightly. I don't know what the board was smoking when they approved that, unless Dr. Dorf spiked their water with powdered matongo or something. You know what? Let's not think about that. I still need to change all the passwords George 3 made when he hijacked our podcast accounts. Seriously? Poshboy007? I can't roll my eyes enough. I agree, Jimmy. It sounds like the board tried to fire anyone and everyone they thought might give them trouble. You, Jessica, Reverend Mafune. From what I hear, some of you didn't go down without a fight. Crystal Lady tried to storm the boardroom, and now she's been kicked off the island. Not that I miss her or anything. I hear she's keeping Beck's company in Indiana. You and Jet hold up in your garage for a while. I'm amazed they didn't try to fire Raymond, but considering the legal eagle Haikiba he's been doing to keep us employed the last few weeks, I can see why they didn't. For sure. The island definitely needs new management. But I confess, there are moments I wonder if dropping a kaiju-sized hammer of justice on the board will kill the island. Attendance has dropped since we outed them. We all might end up unemployed in a few months anyway. Yeah, yeah, Jimmy. We shall overcome. Anyway, I'll set up the mics for Nick, Tim, Joe, and Joy so I can continue their journey through the Heisei Gamera trilogy. What do you mean, they're not coming? You're kidding me. Captain BBC canceled all my guest invitations? I'll just add that to my ever-growing list of things he screwed up that I need to fix. Really? Who'd you get to come on such short notice? Dallas, huh? I've been wanting to have him back on anyway. Given today's subject matter, he'd be a good fit. Good producing there, Jimmy. All right. Everything seems to be in line for today, assuming the board doesn't bribe our little gremlin mascots to sabotage the broadcast. I'm still a bit miffed at how the Guardian of the Universe episode sounded. What's the good chaplain saying? Corone's at the chapel, huh? At least she's in a good place. Tell him I'll come see her there after today's broadcast. Boss? <laughs> Flattery will get you somewhere, Jimmy, but nowhere with me. Nice try, though. Live from the KIJU studios in beautiful Ogasawara, this is the Monster Island Film Vault, episode 51. Dallas Mora versus Gamera 2 Attack of Legion. Hello, Kaiju lovers, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through Tokusatsu. I am your now thankfully terrestrial host, 
Nate Marchand, the film curator here on Monster Island. I was just about to get to that, Jimmy. (laughs) Yes, folks, it's been eventful recently, to say the least. But I am happy to say that I have now returned to terra firma. And let me tell you, you learn to appreciate the things that you don't have. In this case, well, Earth. (laughs) Yeah, spending a little bit of time in orbit will teach you a few things. Like who your bosses really are. I'm just saying. But now that I'm back and I'm cleaning house a little bit to try to get things back into order so we can get back to what we do here on the Monster Island Film Vault, I am happy to say that despite some snags, like all of my guest invitations being canceled, as Jimmy informed me just before we went on the air, I am happy to say that despite that, Jimmy, being the intrepid producer that he is, was able to get me a last-minute replacement for my original tourist crew, as you already heard me hint at in the title drop. And that is my friend, the co-founder of Geek Devotions and Taco Aficionado, Dallas Mora. How's it going, Dallas? I'm doing good, man. How are you doing? (sighs) Well, like I said, it's been exciting. (laughs) are you transitioning to to earth gravity well well thankfully there was artificial gravity somehow it was like this building that we're in was literally catapulted into space and somehow it had artificial gravity and you know some other amenities that i was a little surprised were there like air i don't know how all of that worked I'm just glad that it did. You know, it's like MST3K said, you should really just relax. So uh, when you find yourself suddenly catapulted into space, you'll learn to relax a little bit. (laughs) It's true story. Yeah. But thankfully, I was able to get back, thanks in large part to Jimmy and a couple of my friends. And now, admittedly, we've been in a little bit of a turbulent spot because, well, the board got outed. (laughs) as you probably heard apparently this island is run by a squad of supervillains i guess i shouldn't be surprised so (laughs) but yes (laughs) i now have an island adventure that tops you hanging out in the island wilderness for several months apparently hey man that that was you know some exciting stuff that's like you know man versus wild stuff that i was doing back then really what should have happened is we should have had a film crew and just, you know, produce all that stuff for the, the film vault, man. Get some revenue going into it. In fact, this might be an idea. Start, you know, charging people for the island experience. And you just drop them on a random section and just let them survive. You know, people pay money for that. <laughs> we'll start a little uh, reality show, you know, like, you know, like man versus wild. Man versus kaiju. <laughs> Everybody dies. <laughs> Everybody dies, yes. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're going to need some new ideas now because um, let's just say I'm expecting a change in management. <laughs> mm, that's what I heard. Jimmy was telling me about that on the way here. Yes, yes, yes. But uh, speaking of that, how did you get here? <laughs> was it quite as well, exciting as the last time? It's been a while. Well, what it, was, was it wasn't that bad. It wasn't uh, bad. Just hanging out on Planet Geekery. And I got a message from Jimmy saying that somehow your guest list just got jettisoned into space or something like that. I don't know. That's not and too so he's like, hey. Yeah, so I had to had to get here, and unfortunately, the ship was in use. The way team was out on different parts of the planet, and so we have a space station above the planet Geekery. Mm-hmm. And so, where me and the the crew, we just started a new podcast, the bottom shelf. 
we're reviewing movies. So I told the crew, I got to go. So I took our emergency dragon sword and I uh, got here. So that, that's how I got here. Oh my gosh. My friend Michael is going to be so jealous. Oh yeah. Here, let me, let me show you. Let me show you the dragon sword. Oh. Ah, dang. There he is outside the big old window that jet punch, punch, punched for us. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah. So, uh, he, he's a good guy. He's chilling. He's, I think he's just going to hang outside. You don't think your Mecha Godzilla's gonna have issues, do you? Oh, Kiryu? No, no. Okay, no. Making uh, sure. Uh, right now, especially now, I think Kiryu is having a counseling session with Reverend Mafune because he's, you know, he's got some issues. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, okay. Well, then again, everything's fine. Yeah. It's all good. It's all good. Yeah. yeah. We'll just ignore the fact that you know there was a death battle episode with the two of them, and uh, if I remember correctly, <laughs> Kiryu won. So. <laughs> uh, yeah. 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 We'll just uh. Leave that right there. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> oh man, Michael, oh you, uh, Michael's gonna be calling you up to get a ride in that thing because hey, you know that's cool. Come on, come hang out. You can hang out on the on the Planet Geekery with us. Oh, he probably would. Trust me, he probably would. Silly me. During this broadcast, I forgot to mention that it is the year of. Camera. You're welcome. And now back to the show. But as I mentioned briefly before this, I'm having you on because I needed a new guest <laughs> to talk about Gamera 2 Attack of Legion. Now, my original plan was to have my original core group of tourist co-hosts go on a guided journey through this wonderful trilogy with me. Well, that didn't quite work out, as I said. But right. then uh, Jimmy told me that the reason he invited you on here is because last we knew you had only seen Guardian of the Universe because at my suggestion, when was, oh, good Lord, when was this? Like a year and a half ago now, I think? Yeah, it was, it was a year ago, exactly. On our show, every uh, October, we do some sort of theme. And so, uh, no, it wasn't October. It was February. It yeah, was our Valentine's I mean. theme. Yeah, because it, it was, was I Heart, Heart Japanese Monster. Yeah. Uh, you were, I said, we're going to do one on Gamera. And I said, okay, which movie are you going to use? And I was like, oh, we're going to do the first one. I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> you need to do Guardian of the Universe. So you watched Guardian of the Universe, did a devotional video on it, and uh, it right? pleased me. But uh, so <laughs> I said, so uh, Jimmy got a hold of you and found out you hadn't gone beyond that as many times as I told you that you should. So <laughs> you're here to watch Gamera 2 with me. And yes. talk about it so I can still continue my little theme of someone going on a guided tour, so to speak, of the trilogy. It's just going to look a little bit different. <laughs> sure. And so I am very, very excited to do that with you. I love this trilogy. I can't say that enough. Uh, in <laughs> fact, our mutual friend, Chris Cook, he had me on One Cross Radio about a year and a half ago, I think, to talk about the entire trilogy. And I might be recycling some of my notes from that. I remember that. <laughs> yes. Now, something that Chris and I did not quite get into that we'll get into today is our Toku topic, which admittedly is not as connected to the rest of the movie as a lot of other things. Really? But we'll be talking about the exorcism of the Garrison Demoniac, because that story is where Gamera's opponent 
in this movie gets his name or her name, its name. I don't know. Uh, they call the big one Mother Legion. I don't know. We don't have any of the Legion critters here on the island, mostly because people are kind of terrified of Legion. And yeah, they're kind of weird. So. Yeah, that too. <laughs> that too. <laughs> <laughs> Legion is one of those kaiju that there people are just uh, you know everyone here on the island is just like yeah that one uh, that's not gonna happen yeah good luck with that yeah. probably the best decision the board ever made possibly anyway <laughs> although they still have some other questionable critters here on the island I'm just saying uh, anyway we will skedaddle off to go do that and in the meantime. As well, I don't know if I have to say I'm contractually obligated anymore because I think my contract is getting changed up. Thank you, Raymond Martin. <laughs> but I will be reading in the meantime Jimmy's entertaining info dump on this film. Are you Let's ready? Let's go. All right, Dallas. I'm excited. Gamera is once again the determined and heroic protector. He battles Legion and her swarm soldiers to defend Earth from devastation, which can be inferred as a fulfillment of the purpose for which Atlantis created him. The ravenous insectoid Legion comes to Earth and instinctively establishes a nest via a massive flower, propagating a swarm of soldiers that protect her and the nest. All of them attack and kill intruders and eat silicone-based objects like glass bottles in order to survive. Midori Honami is an intelligent and independent curator for the Sapporo Science Center who investigates what is revealed to be the Legion Swarm. She later advises the JSDF on how to counteract Legion and consults Asagi to get help from Gamera. The investigative and tough Colonel Yusuke Watarase is a member of the JGSDF Chemical School looking into Legion's whereabouts and later spearheads operations against the Swarm. His subordinate, First Lieutenant Hanatani, is an astute and somewhat defiant young man who assists in these operations and advocates for the JSDF to support Gamera. The brilliant and observative Obitsu is an engineer from the NTT Hokkaido Network Operations Center who runs simulations to formulate countermeasures against Legion and also helps evacuate civilians during the swarm's attacks. Once again, the closest thing this film has to a Kenny is Asagi Kusanagi, a kind and faithful teenage girl still serving as Gamera's liaison to humanity, and she constantly reassures others that Gamera is alive and will triumph over Legion. The kaiju and human plot lines are unified. From the beginning, the characters are involved in what at first seems like events unrelated to the kaiju, such as a meteor shower, that are revealed to be connected to them. While the JSDF is leery of Gamera, Legion is the problem. The Legion soldiers are engaged by both the police and JSDF ground troops at several occasions, and while a few of the monsters are killed by them, the forces are ineffective. The JSDF plans to destroy the Legion flower in Sapporo with explosives, but this plan is interrupted by the arrival of Gamera, who destroys the flower. However, the Titanic Terrapin is accosted by a swarm of Legion soldiers. Though Gamera collapses, the creatures are distracted by an electrical transformer and Gamera retreats to the ocean. A larger winged legion appears, and while seemingly destroyed by F-15s with missiles, only a severed wing is found. A second flower appears in Sendai, and both Gamera and the JSDF respond. 
Mother Legion emerges from the underground and battles Gamera while the JSDF evacuates civilians. She gravely wounds Gamera, and the flower launches its seed, destroying the city. Gamera appears to be dead, encased in an ashen shell amidst the ruins. The JSDF sets up a defense line around Tokyo, but despite an all-out assault on Legion, the kaiju is able to break through the first line of defense. The problem is solved by Gamera with help from the JSDF. The Guardian of the Universe awakens and fights Legion, who sicks her Legion soldiers on him. However, the soldiers are lured by the JSDF to an NTT substation to eat power lines, where they are destroyed by helicopters. Meanwhile, Gamera summons energy from the Earth and unleashes a powerful blast that kills Mother Legion. The script by Kazunori Ito has a simple plot but an ensemble cast of characters. Subplots are minimal, and for the most part, the story plays out more like a procedural than a character drama. Like Guardian of the Universe, this was made for around $5 million, which was half the budget of Toho's concurrent Godzilla films, but once again, it outshines its kaiju contemporaries. With this film, director Shusuke Kaneko opted for quality over quantity, having slightly fewer special effects scenes with superior effects. These were enhanced by his exceptional, often low-angle cinematography. While the climax was in a suburban area with no tall buildings, the kaiju suits steal the show. Gamera was redesigned slightly, now sporting webbed hands, hardened facial features, and wing-like flippers while flying. The Mother Legion, though, is a feat of traditional tokusatsu. It took two actors to operate the suit as well as a crew of puppeteers. Coupled with animated rays and some CGI, the whole film has a very anime-esque feel to it. While the sparsely used CGI hasn't aged well, particularly the Legion soldiers that swarm Gamera, the practical effects remain some of the best in the history of Kaijuega. This is a dark film with a tremendous amount of gravitas. However, it maintains a sense of hope throughout. While it is more grounded than the previous film and has more science fiction trappings, it errs on the side of fantasy. In terms of tone and story, this isn't an experimental film compared to the previous one. However, Legion was unlike any foe Gamera had ever faced, being a truly alien creature. The complex design was risky to execute, but that ambition paid off. The film reinforced the style of Gamera Guardian of the Universe with its tone, characters, and creature designs, among other things. This is no surprise given that it was made by mostly the same creative team. The film was made to cash in on the success and acclaim of Guardian of the Universe. While the previous film was standalone, this film features several story elements that go unexplained, hinting at a potential sequel to complete a trilogy. It was intended to entertain older kaiju and Gamera fans, as well as a Japanese general audience. When released in Japan July 13, 1996, it grossed 700 million yen, roughly $6.5 million, which was a similar box office performance to Guardian of the Universe, with an attendance of 1.2 million. It fell short of its projected 1 billion yen gross. Ironically, it was distributed by Toho. It was dubbed and released stateside direct-to-DVD by ADV Films in 2003. It was the first Daikaiju film to win the prestigious Nihon SF Taisho Award, the Japanese Nebula Award, which was seen by critics as evidence of the decline of Japanese science fiction literature. 
The film is beloved by kaiju fans, many of whom considering it the best of the trilogy. It has a 7.2 with almost 2,500 ratings on IMDb. There are several forces at play. Japan's post-war pacifism clashes with the need to respond to a crisis since the prime minister must go on television and say Legion's attack is a self-defense matter and not prohibited by Article 9 of the Constitution. Science and faith are at odds, albeit briefly, but even the scientific Honami finds herself praying for Gamera along with Asagi. Both Legion's and humanity's instincts for self-preservation are at war. The JSDF refuses to trust the benevolent Gamera despite their past experience and instead opts to rely on their own strength. It's stated at the end of the film that Gamera is the guardian of the Earth, not necessarily humanity, meaning he could potentially turn against them. Several themes can be mined from the film. The JSDF this time around trusts the word of experts. Science and faith are shown to be equals. Trusting Gamera, a creature beyond their understanding, is rewarded. The JSDF is shown to be heroic and patriotic. The younger soldier, while at first ignored, eventually has his ideas heard by the old guard, and he's validated for it. Japan manages to reconcile their pacifism with the need to respond to a crisis with military action. Reverence for the environment and forces greater than themselves, such as Gamera, is advocated unless humanity wants to face extinction. I normally say my contractual obligations have been fulfilled, but after recent events, I don't know if that applies. Regardless, let's have some Toku Talk. Wow, that was entertaining information. <laughs> well, you just saw the movie too. So <laughs> was it all accurate? I hope it was accurate. It was pretty accurate, pretty accurate. Yeah, there were yes. a few things where I was like, eh, kind of, but yeah, you're pretty good. You're yeah, spot on. Well, you know, it's not me. It's Jimmy. I just read the dang thing, you know? Right. Yeah. See, you know, he's, he's uh, reminding you too. <laughs> uh, it's what he does, you know? He's talented. Yeah. He's talented. Yes. Yeah, I feel like he should have a blog or something like that. Uh, he does. So. <laughs> follow up blogs to every episode except for when i was stuck in space and he was doing things like holding up in his garage because he refused to let the board kick him off the island apparently there were a lot of interesting things that happened while i was gone my student sister right, tried so to raid the you know the island it you know, was so weird while you were gone dude i was listening to like the last podcast on my way here while i was in, in the dragon's Lord, and you had some weirdos some some dude he was all about like mushrooms i think he uh, probably ate some of the mushrooms because he was a little out there oh dr dorif yeah that guy i kind of wonder if even the board's a little bit scared of him <laughs> i mean the, the british sounding dude he seemed really scared of him uh yeah i mean how did the Joker put it? You know, he's uh, one bad day away from being a supervillain, basically. I mean, All I'm saying is I have family who are in the mental health profession. They might be able to help this guy. Oh, yeah. yeah. If you want, to, I'll pass your sister's contact information to him. <laughs> Seriously, Jimmy? Oh, my gosh. Dallas, speak of the devil. Dr. Dorif is calling in. Apparently, he has some important information that he needs to share with us. What does he want to talk about, Jimmy? 
The Legion Flower? I guess he's expanding his expertise now. It's not just mushrooms anymore in the Matango. All right, Jimmy, put him on the line. Dallas, let me handle this. Okay. Take a dip. Do your thing, man. Well, hello, Dr. Dorif, or should I call you Mushroom Head? Well, I wouldn't if I were you, but now you've gone and done it, and there's no way to turn back time now, is there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, were you calling because you thought you were going to record another Monster Island Gatekeepers podcast or something? Monster Island, um, Kato, what, what was that again? You don't remember trying to take over my show with William H. George III? William H. George Third. I've never even heard the name before. Why am I not surprised? Anyway, what are you actually calling about? Well, I was down in the basement with my beautiful mushroom children, and I, as always, this time of the week was tuning in to your wonderful show. Mm-hmm. I am a big fan, after all, <laughs> and I couldn't help but notice you were talking about something at least tangentially plant-related. So I figured I'd maybe just call in and give you a little bit of background information on one of the monsters in the film you were discussing, the Legion Flower, was it? Yes, uh, the the Legion Flower. The uh, Admittedly, all I know is what was dramatized in the movie, so it's very large, about the size of a building. It can shoot a seed into orbit and is known for blowing up cities. Well, that's only if you, how do you children say it these days, tee them off? Very much so, in fact. They're usually not that volatile, it's just... All about the people around them and the planets they're trying to conquer and the species they're trying to render extinct. You, you know what I mean. You, you know how it is. Y- yes. Well, if you're at all curious, I can give you a little bit of backstory, perhaps, on them. I don't believe I've seen the film, but I doubt they've represented them accurately. Plant-based monster movies are so inaccurate, after all. Always twisting things, making them the villains. Uh. I despise it so. Yeah, so, yeah, I've heard tale that apparently you have decided to broaden your research horizons. It will no longer just be about the Matango? Oh, yes, yes. I, I'll have you know that my interests in giant monsters and monsters in general extend well beyond the limited but precious range of mushrooms, mushroom people, and other mushroomy-related monsters. I have an interest that extends to all different realms, all different corners of the kaiju botany universe, and it just so happens that giant city-destroying flowers are among my many, many passions. Yeah, I'm guessing that you're a little bit upset with Gamera for blowing them up? Well, I um have to say it was quite a shock when I heard that it happened. It's probably one of the reasons I have vague memories of the film. I probably had to blot that part out to save myself from the anguish of watching a beautiful plant monster be destroyed. But I have to remind myself it was only only a film. But I'll have you know that there are many, many other ones out there, many other legion flowers all waiting to explode and spread their precious seed across your planet. Uh, You wouldn't happen to be growing one in your lab, would you? Well, as you might have already guessed, I definitely have 
A couple of prospects in mind. I'll tell you that the one I'm raising now isn't quite large enough to blow up a city, but who knows? Maybe one day. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, is that one that we can expect to see pictures of on your... I, apparently you started a Twitter recently. I, I just found that out right when I got back to Earth. I found out you had started a Twitter. A Twitter? What Mr. Marchand exactly is? A Twitter? You know, it's probably better that you don't remember. Although I will say, the pictures of Rosie and Jenny were nice. R R R Rosie? J Jenny? Rosie and Jenny? Uh, the mushrooms. The, yeah, of course, the, the mushrooms. Yes, yes, I... The, the mushrooms... Uh, tell me a little bit more about the legion flower you're growing. Yeah. Oh yes, yes. Uh, new new subject alert. Am I right? <laughs> yes, 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 yes. <laughs> well, anyway, I I have to say it is actually quite a privilege to raise something so exotic and beautiful. I'm actually more used to doing research on Terran-based monsters, Earthborn creatures, Earthborn plants. You know what I mean? These yes. don't come from Earth. You see. Yes. They come from somewhere else. Where exactly? I'm not sure. I'm hoping to answer that question through my research, but I will say that while the one I'm raising right now is very, very small, it is beautiful. It releases the most intoxicating aroma. And I must say, when you lick them, there is the most unusual taste in your mouth, and you see the most amazing uh, things. Uh, TMI, the sir. Sights, the sounds, uh, the... TM. I, I tell you what, tell you what, I, I think we'll uh, we'll uh, stop right there. And when I get around to Biolante, because I'm sure you've been spending a lot of time with Biolante recently here on the island, I'll give you a call, okay? You can tell us about all your new research. Oh, you know me. I'm always ready for a phone call with one of my favorite podcast hosts. <laughs> and that's... <laughs> that's you, by the way. <laughs> I, uh, I, I figured. I figured. Uh, thank you very much, uh, uh, Dante. Can I call you Dante? As long as you don't call me late for dinner, Mr. Marchand. <laughs> I, I made it funny. <laughs> yes. Yes, you did. Anyway. Uh... <laughs> you kill me so. <laughs> uh, yeah, and sometimes oh, I wonder that's... if you'll... Uh, if that might be a little bit literal... Okay, so fascinating stuff. Yeah. I, I feel educated. Uh, really uh, concerned about this gentleman's mental state. Yeah. Um, More concerned about the board member who thought it was a good idea to hire him. I, I think I, they just figured that as long as he keeps to himself, we're all cool. Yeah, sure. But like I said, interesting information. I feel educated today. Yes. Ah, yeah. Jimmy does say uh, does say that he uh, visited that lab one time, and uh, weird things happened. I remember that. <laughs> Those were the weirdest tweets you ever made, Jimmy. I'm just saying. Rule of thumb, never visit the mad scientist's lab at Halloween. Noted. <sighs> yes, noted. Halloween is coming up here on the island, and hopefully the Halloween festivities will still happen given everything that has recently happened. I'm not sure the place will be open in a few months. I might be looking for a new job, but <laughs> hopefully that won't happen. 
Do the kaiju dress up in Halloween costumes? Occasionally. <laughs> I'm just curious what Godzilla dress is like. Does he dress like Mothra? No, uh, actually, I think he likes to really mess with people, and he does stuff like dress up like Kong. Oh, <laughs> you know, like he finds like a giant inflatable Kong suit and puts it on. <laughs> what he really likes to do to really throw people off is dress up like other giant lizards. So, like, I think one year he was Gorgo, and almost oh. nobody noticed. <laughs> Except That's for funny. Gorgo, and the you know, Gorgo herself was just like, "What are you doing?" And, <laughs> She was uh, a little upset there. But anyway, we're not here to talk about Halloween kaiju parties. We're here to talk about Gamera 2. So I first thing I want to say here is I'm using the more commonly used, I guess, official English title right. for this film, Attack of Legion, but I do not like that one. I much prefer Advent of Legion. It just sounds so much cooler. There's a more epicness to it. In fact, when we talked about me doing this, I was thinking back to it. I was like, wait a minute. You told me the name. It was a different name a year ago when we talked about the Gamera series. And so I thought it was a different film. And then I realized that they changed the name. Why do they do that? Why do they change the name? I don't know. Especially since uh, even if you look at the Japanese title card for this movie, it says in tiny print, admittedly, Advent of Legion. Hmm. The English title is right there for you guys. Right there. Why aren't you using it? Did the copyright run out there? Or were they making a new copyright? I don't know. Admittedly, Gamera 3 has equally as goofy a thing with its English language titles because it has several as well. But, you know, they settled on Gamera 3 Revenge of Iris. But again, we're not here to talk about that. (laughs) So, first time seeing this film what are your initial reactions before we start diving headlong into my notes or our notes i should say (laughs) my initial reaction to it is that i thought it was a good follow-up film like watching the first one and then watching this one having the reoccurring characters because i was a little bit i was a little wary about that you know i legitimately haven't watched a lot of gamera in the past all i know is that jimmy's in it apparently somewhere oh virus (laughs) Yes, Uh, he was not in the movie, but that was apparently a very exciting chapter of his life. Right. So Yes, Jimmy, keep reminding us about how cool you are, okay? You you are very cool, Jim. Yeah, you helped Gamera save the world from an alien invasion. It's how you got the job at NASA. We get it. All right, moving on. (laughs) But, you know, watching the... um, the show I've been going through the show era of Godzilla mm-hmm. and there's a loose continuity that takes place in those films. Mm-hmm. In fact, you've talked about in the past how you have actors playing different characters in different movies, <laughs> different Godzilla movies. Yeah. And you're like, wait a minute, is that no, it's not. It's just somebody else, <laughs> you know, yeah, that's because and I was Toho, concerned. Uh, well, the Japanese film industry at the time was doing the contract system like old Hollywood. So right. they've, you know, the actors would just be like, hey, you need a job? Going to be in a Godzilla movie. You're just playing a different character. Okay. <laughs> it was just what they did. The old Gamera right. movies were the same way. Right. Well, I was concerned that was going to happen with uh, Gamera 2. Now, Gamera 1, it was a great movie. I really did enjoy it. Mm-hmm. The production quality was great. And you had told me that, which is the reason why I did Gamera Guardian of the Galaxy uh, for... Universe. Um, yeah, Guardians Universe. of the Galaxy is a whole other thing. <laughs> he has a musical number where he dances. Uh, <laughs> instead of spinning and flying, he spins on a shell. And they go, go, Ninja, meme. go. Oh, so that's the wrong movie. Anyways. Yeah, I made that meme. 
(laughs) (laughs) So, but he, um, I was concerned about the the carryover, and what I liked about it is it's a direct sequel, and that it it continues the story. You have the character, you you have you saw Gay back again with it and everything, and yes. I like that. I appreciate there's continuity. This is a, a franchise that you can watch and enjoy a broader story. Now, the first I will, movie was real con- Yeah. I was just going to say that I will tell you this the returning characters in this, their supporting cast in this. Yeah. Not only, and two of uh, well, a couple of them come back. Osagi is the most prominent. Osako? Yeah. Osako, the detective, he mm-hmm. makes a cameo. Right. But other than that, it's mostly new characters. Right. Now, in Gamera. Three more characters come back and they play bigger parts. Right. But see, I'm okay with that. As long as there's a there's a good through line and it makes sense. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It shows you this is a bigger universe than just three characters. And so I really enjoyed the aspect. I enjoyed the production of it also. I mean, it was a good production. I do feel like the production maybe went downhill towards the end of the film, to be honest. Oh, well, okay. We'll get into that. I was going to say that uh, my, if I had to, you know, explain my thoughts in a nutshell on this particular film, I would say to people that this is superior to Guardian of the Universe in every way except one. What's that? The characters. <laughs> I feel that the characters in this are more there in service to the plot, which is not bad necessarily because there are plenty of good plot-driven movies out there, but they're more Mm -hmm. in service to the plot as opposed to being a big emphasis in and of themselves uh, compared to Guardian of the Universe. Now, Gamera 3 takes everything and cranks it to 12. No kidding. (laughs) Let me tell you. Cranks it to 12. So... It's got some quirks of its own, but it cranks mm-hmm. everything to 12. But in this one, the the characters, I felt like, oh, overall, are not quite as impressive as they were in the first one. I may have to watch that now. Gamera 3? You should watch Gamera 3. <laughs> Last I checked in the States, you can watch Gamera 3 on Amazon Prime and Tubi. You have no excuse. Yeah. Well, now, to be perfectly honest, when I first watched the original Gamera, I had no way of finding it. So I had to watch it on YouTube, and so I was a little sketchy on the dubbing I watched originally. So uh, actually, the du- I'm guessing that the dub you saw was probably the original ADV dub, mm-hmm. unless there was not the dubbing. Dubbing. I'm sorry, the subtitle. It was subtitled. I watched it. Oh, okay, okay. Well, that was probably a fan sub, but <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> so uh, you know, let's uh, get into some more specifics here. You know, uh, as much as I want to talk about the Christian symbology in this, I'll save that for a little bit later. Uh, mm-hmm. Jimmy was pleased that the movie started in NASA. You know, he uh, <laughs> he's like, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who any of those people are, but I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> it was a busy day. Yeah, it was a busy day. <laughs> oh, okay, he wasn't working at NASA at the time, but he recognized the setting. Okay. Oh, uh, okay. okay. We'll just ignore the fact that everybody at NASA apparently you know, is from the South. <laughs> so bad. Everybody is from Kentucky. <laughs> hilariously, even hilariously did you know that there's actually a comedy dub of this movie where that's exactly no. what they do? Are you for real? Yeah. ADV, when they released these movies originally, they did a, a legit dub. 
And they also did a comedy dub where all of the actors voiced their characters as if they were rednecks. Oh my gosh. This is ridiculous. <laughs> I have if to find- you get the arrow set, it has it on there. It's got basically everything. So, oh my gosh. Terrible. <laughs> yeah. Now, before we go any further, because I neglected to bring this up in the previous episode, and Jimmy reminded me of this. is like, how could you forget this man? And that was composer Koatani. Mm-hmm. Koatani did this entire trilogy, and I have to bring it up, because not only are his soundtracks absolutely fantastic, uh, they are epic and they are big and the you know they really define this trilogy the sound of this trilogy oh yeah so much and he actually i saw an interview with him where he actually said i have been getting work 5 and 10 years after this trilogy because of it <laughs> no kidding and one of the he did compose for a godzilla film he did gmk cuz Conoco and basically everybody, you know, a bunch of people who were the Gamera crew, as they called them, worked on GMK. Right. And the, but what the reason I have to bring him up is because he also has composed soundtracks for video games, most prominently Shadow of the Colossus. Wow, that sounds on familiar. The, on the PS2 and the theme song to our show is a remix from Shadow of the Colossus. So without Koatani, the show would not have its kickin' theme song. <laughs> so thank you, Koatani, for doing that for us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so did have to bring that up. So uh, speaking of more awkward English, <laughs> it was a bit surreal for me. Every time I watch this movie, it's always a bit surreal when we have the English-speaking newscasters, and then yeah. we have the Japanese interpreter, and then the Japanese interpreter gets subtitled? Yes. <laughs> I'm just like, this is like a weird variation of how I feel every time I watch Shin Godzilla. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you this, like, watching it, though, because you have the subtitles in Japanese at the same time, and then they put the words on top of it, and whoever was in charge of doing the subtitling, they needed to pay attention to the fact that you couldn't read the white subtitle text over the Japanese white subtitle text. <laughs> I was like, come on, guys, we, 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 let's work this out. Somebody here can think a little bit further than this. Mm. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> I found myself how, like, like looking at the screen screen, like, what does that say? Jamie's like, I don't know. And I'm just having <laughs> to work it out. Sometimes. Sometimes <laughs> it feels like that. Now, I mentioned, we, we talked about some of the characters coming back. So, uh, doc, uh, not doctor. Uh, Detective Osako, he apparently has a new job now. He's a security guard at a beer warehouse, Kirin Beer, which is apparently one of the more, more, not common, but more popular beers in Japan. Ah. And uh, I read that they actually did film that at an actual beer warehouse, and everybody there was actually very nice. Uh, They were a little bit concerned when they started seeing stuff get spilled, but (laughs) all over the place. But we have this nice kind of comedic yet also horrifying scene <laughs> where you think apparently the le- you know the tiny legions are right. <laughs> going for the beer. You find out later, no, they wanted the glass bottles, but it's still kind of funny. Right. You know, <laughs> they're going after the beer. <laughs> and he his reaction is basically, oh no, not again. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. It was hysterical watching him and 
again, that was one of the things I liked about was the callback. It's a subtle callback to the previous film. But his freaking out is like, you're like, he, this dude's dealing with some serious PTSD right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Jim, let, let me tell you, Jimmy knows all about that, right, Jimmy? Yep. In fact, he had to relive it a little bit because we had to watch the war in space in order for me to get back to terra firma. So <laughs> that was an interesting day, to say the least. Right. Just remember, Jimmy, baby Yoda. <laughs> Baby Yoda, just tell yourself Baby Yoda and you'll be fine. All right, we've uh, we've talked about this, but uh, so that was kind of kind of fun. It, it's interesting. I found a quotation from uh, from uh, Shusuke Kaneko where he actually said that he honestly felt like the only real difference between directing horror for adults and directing horror for kids is that when you do it for kids, you can't use as much blood. And then you watch that subway scene and you're like, really. all right i want to talk about that subway scene because you and i were talking in the pre-show this gave me some real parasite eve feels and those who are listening tell help me out if is there a connection between the team that worked on this and parasite eve i know that there is a connection between this and the live action death note that didn't suck um (laughs) darn you netflix but like I just it really I don't is it just the the way they did films and kind of horror scary films or I or, or what I honestly don't know I'm actually jumping on my uh, my laptop here my studio laptop to see if I can find anything related right. to that uh, I know that the, the art thing, director the first thing that comes up is the video game but right <laughs> I know the art director of this film worked on Common Rider back in '94 it was a Common Rider J. Oh yeah, yeah, I've seen that. Which, when you put that together with the legions, like you're like, oh, that makes sense. Like these, these prop, these might have been like early designs for Common Rider that they just reworked into this whole thing. Oh, that wouldn't surprise me. Uh, Keita Amamiya, he made it. He yeah. probably did some designs for him. By the way, pa- Parasite Eve is based on a novel. That's interesting. Yeah, and the novel was published in 1995. Hmm. And then it Even was published. Uh, it was published in the United States in 2005. I'm not surprised about that. Yeah, I don't see anything here. I don't see any names that I recognize. Right. That might have been from this that I can tell. Right. It may just been the way they did films in back in the mid '90s, but like as I'm watching those horror scenes, it just felt like I don't know. I just got vibes. It was, it was taking back, taking me back to watching Parasite Eve. Yeah. Although I'm what I'm looking at is for the game. I'm trying to find stuff for. Move. Maybe he has to be something for Jimmy to look into for the uh, yeah, for, for his, his blog. Uh, Follow up blog. Yeah, there you go, Jimmy. You got your first. Got your homework. Assignment. Yeah, <laughs> help us out there. <laughs> Make a note. Make a note. But the I it wouldn't surprise me. It seems like it was pretty indicative of uh, stuff like that. I mean, and there were some other things that were similar to this. You got to remember, this movie came out about seven months or so after. Godzilla versus Destroya, and there's a sequence in Godzilla versus Destroya that is similar to what they did here with the Legion soldiers, but I'm going to be honest with you, the Legion soldiers are better. (laughs) (laughs) But I would also tell you that you could go back to probably, I would say at least aliens and Mm -hmm. make comparisons there. Cause that's what, that was the vibe I was getting was, I can see that uh, with the Legion soldiers running around. Now, interestingly from what I was able to gather in my research, there's an even older film that August Ragone said in his introduction to this on the Arrow Blu-ray set, where he said that 
the inspiration for the Legion soldiers goes all the way back to the 50s. No kidding. Yes. Have you ever heard of them? Yes. The uh, 1954, yeah, 1954 film with the giant ants? Yeah. Apparently, that's what inspired the Legion soldier. So it goes all the way back to that. I can see that connection there. Yep. So let me ask you this. Did this come off more to you like like a creature feature horror film than the previous Gamera? Because it did to me. Uh, I I liked it. I feel like a good uh, tonal shift. I would say so. Now, there were some horror aspects in Guardian of the Universe because the Gauss eat people. Sure. Yeah, you know, and you had the you know the Jurassic Park inspired scene probably <laughs> you know with the uh, Gauss droppings, right? Oh, that's uh, bringing me back to some unpleasant memories from recent events. But anyway, but I think that's like the the Legion soldiers that grounded this film into a different genre for me. And oh, yeah. like the first one's definitely like giant monster kaiju. You got the Gauss flying everywhere. Everything's massive. This with the Legion uh, soldiers, it brought this to a ground level where you're like, oh my gosh, you know, like, so you could have that legitimately intense scene. Like I legitimately jumped when that first Legion soldier jumped up uh, at the train. And you know what? That's how you do a jump scare, right? Yeah. American horror films have gotten very bad with their (laughs) jump scares to the point where it's practically a punchline. Yeah. And yet they is. keep doing it, even though people make fun of it. It just astonishes me. But this is actually how you do it right. So you have the tension and you build toward the jump scare, the reveal. But unlike in most American horror movies, the jump scare is not the punchline. The right. jump scare is the pivot. Now, admittedly, right. the scene doesn't go on much longer after that. But the whole idea is, and this is how older American horror movies used to work when they would do that. Mm-hmm. You have the jump scare, but that's the moment that the scene changes. Right. And then the rest of this, so it's like, ah, and then they don't let up on the fear. So it's like, ah, the killer. And now he's chasing the victim. So then, so it doesn't just stop there. And that's what you right. have here. So the Legion soldier pops up, crashes through the window, <laughs> murders that guy <laughs> in a ridiculously gory fashion because it was kids. And then you have the people on the train panicking for the next you know, 30 seconds or so, and then the scene ends. But that's how you do it right. Was this really built for kids, though? I mean, really. I mean, when you watch this film all the way through, it felt like they were trying to be as not like Gamera, friend of the children, as possible. Except they have some homages to that. There's there's some homages, but I saw no Kenny. No, but there were kids in it. I mean, mean, the the closest thing to a Kenny that you have in this trilogy is a Soggy. Yeah. And but she's not annoying. No. <laughs> but then again, I'm not t- saying that she's annoying because you know who her dad is? Who? You didn't hear? Did you not hear the uh, Guardian of the Universe episode? Her dad is Steven Seagal. You going to say anything bad about his daughter? <laughs> no. <I'm not. laughs> I believe the answer is no. <laughs> nope. Much respect to you, Mr. Seagal. <laughs> Uh, and her mother runs uh, that actress, uh, Fujitani, I think is her name. Ayako Fujitani. I could be wrong on that, but I, you know, go ahead and correct me if you want, Jimmy. Uh, yeah, and her mother runs a dojo. Oh. So, Steven Seagal. Yeah, that's terrifying. mom. <laughs> that is terrifying. Yes. So, uh, be nice. <laughs> yeah, because he will break my legs. Yes, probably. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so anyway, uh, yeah, we'll we'll move on to uh, well, no, let, let's. I'm gonna like again. I'm gonna save the symbology stuff until we get a little bit to the end of the Toku talk. So a few things that uh, that I have on here. Did you notice that it takes us a half an hour to see Gamera? Yeah. And I love how no one complains about the fact that it takes us a while to see Gamera, but every time you have to wait a while to see Godzilla in a movie, people whine. I don't understand that. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, you could even say, you know, like in this one, because people say like in Godzilla 2014, it's like, the Mutos are in it more. You don't see Godzilla until 40, 45 minutes in. I was like, yeah, and in this movie, Gamera doesn't show up until 30 minutes in, and the movie's 20 minutes shorter than Godzilla 2014. And you mostly see Legion at the beginning. Have I ever right. heard anyone complain about this? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying consistency. <laughs> uh, anyway, so I'm getting off of that soapbox a little bit. Now, since we're talking about Gamera, who at the moment anyway, although I anticipate this changing because that might be a rule, a board ruling that gets reversed you know, the uh, current king of the monsters here on the island. What did you think of their little redesigns for Gamera in this movie? The redesigns of Gamera compared to the compare previous to Gamera the, movie? Guardian of the Universe, yes. This is my thing is it was good. Uh, it wasn't bad. But like it, to me, like it almost felt like there was a, a, a redesign of, of how they did things even from the beginning of the film to the, to the back end of the film. Like it seemed more cinematic in the first sequence with Gamera. When he first lands, and you see his like his his stuff forming up. Like it, you can tell they they improved some of their animation. We'll say that mm. they improved their animation. You know, like what the year it took to, uh, between the two films. Yes. That when you get to the back end of it, it almost like the like like they took three steps back to the first film with the way they did the animation. How so? It just uh, it, it, there was a downgrade in the filming. Mm. Like there was a downgrade in the animation and in the suit work. Wasn't bad. Still enjoyed it. But in the first one, it felt more cinematic, whereas in the back end of it, especially in the daylight shots, the daylight shots were terrible, in my opinion. <laughs> like they just they, they lost the feel, and and that's the reason why a lot of films that are suit based or model based are better with darker scenes because you can hide imperfections. You can make things a little more cinematic and more interesting when it's all bright and sunlight out there. There's a rubberiness to things. And so that was my that was my issue with with that whole aspect of it. Hmm. Interesting. Now uh, I was think uh, speaking more specifically of the because this was something that Higuchi and Kaneko wanted to do in the first movie, but they didn't get to. But then after the success of Guardian of the Universe, the studio said, "Okay, we'll let you have some more creative freedom." <laughs> Is they wanted to make Gamera more like a sea turtle. They wanted him to have fins. And in this, they actually gave him fins because their thinking was that he could use the fins to help stabilize himself like an airplane while he's right. flying. And uh, they made it so that, you know, he can, when he lands, he can actually morph his fins into his regular hands. And even th but even then, he has webbed fingers, which he right. didn't have in, the, in Guardian of the Universe. And they yeah. changed his face a little bit so that it was slightly less cartoony. You know, friendly looking. <laughs> they hardened it just a tiny bit. Right. Well, that's what I was saying. Like the first part, like like he looks like it looks like he's going hard. Like it's it's a lot more terrifying. But again, when you get into the the, the layer scenes, it just felt rubbery and you lost it. I did notice the transformation of the fins, though. When you say that, I did notice that, and it felt like like some of it was more for like, look, he's a plane. 
<laughs> Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's Gamera. And so a hype meme is born. And <laughs> but yeah, so they made some, they made some little changes, like I said. Because one of the things that they wanted to do is they wanted to dial up the realism more in this one compared to Guardian of the Universe. And mm -hmm. I guess giving Gamera the sea turtle wings that help stabilize him while he's flying was supposed to be part of that? It actually I mean, makes some sort of sense. I it will does. say that. And I, I appreciate that, like that they were like, hey, let's do something that makes sense for the for where this film is going to be done. Yeah. Now, when since we're talking about that sequence... That gets to, I mean, you were talking about the rubberiness in some of the later daylight scenes. This sequence, when Gamera first appears, has the special effects sequence that I don't think has aged very well. <laughs> <laughs> Which is when the Legion soldiers go marching one by one, hurrah, hurrah, <laughs> and uh, they crawl all over Gamera and it's CGI. That was the one aspect of that yeah. scene that was, it was a cool concept. And I liked it, but it was it was definitely the it, it, you could tell like it, it was almost like they rotoscoped those things on and yeah. like had like a bad wire frame or something like that. Yeah, the CGI again, of it did not look good. Now the practical version looked great. Oh yeah, that should tell you something. The CGI in these movies doesn't always age well, but the practical stuff does. Right. Go figure on that. And I actually found out how they did the practical version. They actually took a Gamera suit sized and shaped net. And then attached all the little Legion soldier props to it and then just put it over the suit. <laughs> <laughs> that works. That works really well. Yeah. And then we get the second form of Legion that's only on screen for about two minutes. That mm -hmm. looks like this winged version that's about, I don't know, about the size of a bus, maybe. And then we get the apparently the official title for it is Mother Legion. Mm -hmm. So Mama Legion. <laughs> <laughs> at the end and Shinji Yaguchi who I've met by the way he's a fun, oh. he's a cool dude a very animated fellow very opposite mm -hmm. from Shusuke Kaneko who I've also met who's a much more subdued man huh. in fact I saw an interview with some of the crew members where they actually said that Kaneko would not really impose his opinion on you while they were filming but Higuchi would so <laughs> <laughs> and Huguchi said, in his personal opinion, Legion is one of the best kaiju designs of the last 30 years and is the creation that he is most proud of. And I will tell you, when you get to Mother, when you get to Mama Legion, about you know, toward the end of the movie, mm -hmm. that thing is a feat of tokusatsu. It was impressive, like looking at that suit, the way everything functioned on it. Because at first, like like when you see it, you're like, okay, like what are we doing with these like little like claw things on the side of it but the fact that they all like they seem to have function they moved and then when he had that final attack with the the random like light whips <laughs> i was like oh my god this is terrifying <laughs> yeah when he, and he starts lashing gamma yeah. hmm. again we'll save the symbology <laughs> for later but <laughs> but yeah and that was done with a suit it had some obviously they had some animatronics and some puppeteering work to get some of the appendages to work but there were two men in that suit making it no work. way yeah two one in the front that was doing things like moving the head and you know kind of and some of the the appendages on the front and then one guy in the back 
was basically mm. laying down in order to make the the back end of the thing work. Awesome. And here's another mind-blowing fact for you. Mizuho Yoshida, uh-huh. he was the front half of Legion. Hmm. He also, before this, for one thing, he's six foot eight. He's a big dude. <laughs> oh my gosh. He's a big dude. And he previously played the titular villain in the Zerum movies. That is just straight 90s craziness. <laughs> uh, I do recommend them, though. And he went on after this to play Godzilla. Really? He was Godzilla in GMK. Nice. Because they wanted a really tall guy to be in the <laughs> suit for that one. So he's six foot eight. <laughs> he's a big man. He's a big dude. So, yeah. So. A lot of interesting connections in here. But yeah, that's, oh my gosh. And uh, that suit, I think, is the big reason why Legion himself, him itself, herself, whatever, is the big reason why this movie is as popular as it is. Because different people will pick different entries in this trilogy as their favorite. A lot of people say Guardian of the Universe. I think that's largely for nostalgia. Admittedly, Guardian of the Universe was the first Gamera movie I ever saw. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of people, they pick like Kyle Gount of Kaiju Cast fame, who also did the commentary on the Arrow set for this movie. This one's his favorite. And I think it's in large part because Legion is such an, an incredible feat of tokusatsu, of mm. just practical special effects. Uh, that thing is nuts, and I can't believe it exists. And you want to know something else, just to blow your mind a little bit more, Dallas? Yes. This movie was made for $5 million. Really? Yeah, which was half the budget of Toho's Godzilla films at the time. That is impressive. And I said this in the Guardian of the Universe episode, I'll say it again. These movies were made for half the budget and they're twice as good. Fight me, you know, people. Fight there's me. a lot of people out there that say that, that, that at the time frame, these films, they did what Godzilla could not do. And I had heard one commentator say that they, they put everything in it because there was almost like a vendetta against Toho. Because Toho was rocking out with Godzilla, and everyone's like, "Oh yeah, Toho," but nobody knows Daie, nobody. And so there the was them. They're going, "We're going to show you what we can do." Mm-hmm. And that comes to show you. I mean, you don't need a ton of money to make a good film. This is one of my issues with some American films we have today: is that we have just tons of cash thrown at these films, and a lot of it is is blown on just poor decisions, and it drives me nuts. You and I, I think we, I think you and I had talked about it. Maybe not. Maybe I'll talk about it with somebody else. Godzilla versus Kong, the original one. Mm-hmm. A lot of their budget was blown on the guy who's dressed as Kong. And to me, that was a waste because like he didn't even care. Like they're like, hey, go study monkeys. He's like, eh, no, no worry about it. I'll just wave my arms around in the air like an idiot. And you're like, what are you doing? <laughs> Basically. <laughs> <laughs> but whereas, here in Daya, Daya was Hauro, Nakajima was taking it very seriously. Right. <laughs> but here, like Daya, they're like, hey, we're going to do this right. So, you know, our animatronics need to be on point. Our puppeteers need to be on point. I mean, granted, this is 96. I mean, the graphics aren't the most fantastic, but where they are, they really hustled to make it work. Oh, yeah. And they worked on that suit painstakingly. They learned how to shoot the thing so that it looked good. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times that's I've heard that if you actually just see if you were on set and just saw the suit, it was less impressive. But with the way they shoot it, they make it look 
probably if they make it look better than it probably are uh, actually is. So, right. <laughs> so, so uh, cinematography is a big part of that, and that's one of the places where this this trilogy really excels. Where Toho's output in the '90s, trust me, I know, <laughs> suffers, and that was in the cinematography department <laughs> because the cinematography in these is just absolutely stellar. I can't yeah. say that enough. One of the things that I heard one person say that part of the reason why that is that they really worked hard to make sure you got low lying shots. Oh yeah. To make everything. And even when they did some green screen stuff, you're like, wow, this is really good. The, and the scene where they're in that first city and the Legion flower is about to take off. Or no, it's when it's first blooming and the buildings are falling apart. You have people running the way that they, a low shot things, but then had the, um, just the green screen. It was really pretty clean, especially for 1996 production. Oh yeah, well, I, I should since you're bringing up the Legion flower, and we had our very awkward visit from Doctor Dorf. I, I should tell you that did you know that the Legion flower is actually a reference, another callback? No, uh, it's a callback to Ultra Q. Really? Yes, Episode Four. It's called the Mammoth Flower, and they had a giant flower plant monster called Juron in it. And if you watch that episode and then you watch this movie again, you're you you're just like, oh my gosh, it's almost the same thing. <laughs> it's basically the same thing. That is how much of a Toku nerd the people you know, like Kaneko and Higuchi are. <laughs> it's right. going all the way back to Ultra Q. <laughs> that is awesome. But you see that that again that that adds to adds to it when you have people who love the genre. They make better things for the genre. It's the reason why the the MCU stuff is do, is good, doing good. You know, Foggy loves the Marvel comic genre, and so that's why his movies are great. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the past we had, uh, you know, the nineteen ninety four Fantastic Four or <laughs> the the Captain America from the early nineties. <laughs> these are these are horror films, children. They ruined. They, they... <laughs> I have seen them. <laughs> so, I, uh, to a certain extent i can vouch for that <laughs> but it's, it's a matter of like people who love like you could tell like this was a this wasn't just a guy going out for a paycheck like the people who directed this they love the genre well what's it's especially astonishing because i mentioned in the guardian of the universe episode Conoco did not care for gamma he didn't like the old gamma movies he wanted to direct godzilla right he wanted godzilla but Sure, but he, he loved the genre. The, yeah, he didn't get Godzilla. He got Gamera, and then he made Gamera cooler than Godzilla for a couple of years. <laughs> I'm just saying. Fight me, people. Yeah. Fight me. But especially in this movie, because Gamera gets the best entrance ever. <laughs> this He was a flippant superhero here for a second he's flying in and then he sprouts out of a shell and he lands and he slides and as he's sliding he's shooting fireballs at legion <laughs> i'm just like oh my gosh <laughs> oh yeah he came in hard man <laughs> <laughs> well and that that climax they intended to do that differently because they wanted it to be set in a suburban area as opposed to a big city Mm-hmm. And for Higuchi, he actually said that because oh, he grew up in the suburbs of Tokyo. And he, so he said, like, oh, it brought back memories. <laughs> so <laughs> it was a bit nostalgic for him. But he said, like, he also wanted to do something different. It's like, people keep 
doing cities like the big cities are these big are these symbols of Japan. It's like it can be the suburbs too, you know. <laughs> right. Which I love that aspect also. I think that's that's part of what gave the film such a different feel. It wasn't going for like, hey, here's Tokyo. Everybody knows Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, in this one, I mean, it starts in Hokkaido, which is the northernmost island of Japan. That's a little mm-hmm. bit different. That doesn't happen very often in the in these sorts of movies. And then it goes to Poro. Yeah, yes. Sapporo. Sapporo. The fact that the, the one of the scenes takes place in a pachinko. That was funny. <laughs> I was like, nobody talks about pachinko. <laughs> yeah, well, they do a little bit more now. And we have some pachinko machines here on the island. You should go check them out. I might have to hit that up later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Over at uh, King Caesar's Palace. Yeah, it's uh, it's fun stuff. <laughs> but, yeah, 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 well, and then the, what's crazy is the, you have uh, Sapporo in this, and uh, it gets vaped. And it's just a plot point. Yeah. <laughs> it's not even the end of the movie and it just gets vaped. Just gone. Just gone. Because the was, flower. And yeah. uh, crazy. I will say this, the aftermath with Gamera there, that was kind of cool. Yeah. I have, to, you know, that was one of those things. And uh, Kyle Yount brought this up in his commentary. And I really do think that the, the destruction of Sapporo, that must have hit the Japanese audience differently than it would hit a non-Japanese audience. Mm-hmm. because as he put it, you know, it replicates the, he called them the doom towns that you would see in old footage of nuclear tests from the fifties and sixties. Yeah. Replicated that. And you know, you have the, the crater with the corpse of Gamera that stands as a reminder to that. And I reminded me of stories that I heard about where I forget what the exact term was for it, but basically they, if you went to Hiroshima or Nagasaki, immediately after the uh, after the bombings you could literally find spots where people's basically people's shadows were burned yeah. into the side of a building yeah i've seen uh, i've read a couple of books on those events and you, there's pictures of that and it's it's kind of terrifying to see that yeah. and to look at that and i could definitely see mm-hmm. and that's you know i've talked about this before nathan about the fact that a lot of these films when they have these massive disaster things there's a lot of japanese culture involved with that in the way it all plays out, even down to the like the evacuations that take place, mm-hmm. which was interesting to watch the evacuations, how neat and orderly they are, and how or like like it's just organized them evacuating stateside. You're, you're evacuating a place, at least in, in films. We don't we don't normally evacuate people, <laughs> yeah. But like like when we like when we evacuated New Orleans or when we evacuated South Louisiana during the hurricanes, it's a little bit unorganized at times. <laughs> Yeah. We have structures in place to make sure highways only go one direction. But like this last hurricane season we had, we had a really big hurricane hit down South Louisiana. They didn't have time to get that organized. And so we had some traffic jams that took place. But in Japan, man, they got it down pat. And I think it was in your episode where you talked about the submersion of the... Submersion the, of Japan, which yeah. is, that was episode 33. And is significant to this because watching Submersion of Japan is what inspired Higuchi to become a special effects artist. Oh, that's interesting. He saw that as a child. Right. But in that one, you were talking about the fact like that it's a culture. Like we have to work together. We like mm-hmm. this is an island nation. We have to work together. We have to move together to make sure things are done correctly, which is again, that plays into the whole point of like they, there's really not a big fan of uh, in Japan of people being like individual and being like, you know, rebellious it's, yeah, and certain things. Much more communal culture. Exactly. Trust me, I know there's a lot of Japanese people who work here on the island. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a life or death situation for them. And so they're like, look, we're going to make this happen. And so you have that scene right there where things have been destroyed. 
I'm sure that did hit people. I'm sure this entire film hit people differently because it's not just a, oh, we're blowing up stuff. It's like, hey, we've had to evacuate because of hurricanes and tornadoes, not tornadoes, well, but uh, the, earthquakes. The flower is basically treated like it is a nuclear weapon. Right. The way it works is similar to a nuclear weapon. Very mm -hmm. similar. Because like I said, Sapporo gets destroyed. Yeah. And it's not even the end of the movie. Right. This was also at a time where Japan was also dealing with some more recent tragedies, traumas. Hmm. They had just had the great Hanshin earthquake. Mm -hmm. And also, have you ever heard of the Amshin Rikyo sarin gas attack? I have not. I talked about it a bit in episode three on the anime trilogy. Amshin Rikyo was basically a doomsday cult in Japan at the time, and they detonated a sarin gas bomb in a Japanese subway hmm. around this time. Killed oh my a goodness. lot of people. Yeah. So, you know, there's a little bit of that reflected in this film as well. Man. And, That's you know, Higuchi crazy. admitted that you know, a lot of the tokusatsu that he was watching as a kid was a lot of, a lot of it was from the 70s, and he said it was a more cynical time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he said that made an impression on him. So stuff right. like Godzilla versus Hedorah and stuff like that. You know, so I I don't think he's a full fledged cynic. He's he's a very he's a very happy, outgoing dude. Let me tell you, right? Loves the fans and loves ha and you know he's a he's a big kid. <laughs> he is a big kid, but I have no doubt in my mind that that was that still played into this. And this is not a cynical movie. I right. will say that it's not a cynical movie, but no. it's still reflecting a lot of that trauma. You know, uh, right for Japan, and I've talked about this. In the Guardian of the Universe episode, Kaneko himself said that uh, for Japan, the you know trauma tends to be collective. You know, it tends to be very national. And as Americans, you know, we don't fully understand that. We've experienced it to a certain extent. Things like 9/11 and all of that. Mm. When it's something that big, but for the Japanese, they tend to experience it communally as a culture. Right. And the other thing that's interesting about this that's a little bit different is this movie's attitude toward the military mm -hmm. is different. It's much it's more positive, which is interesting because Kaneko said in an interview that he was actually raised in an anti-war family, basically a pacifist family, mm -hmm. and was told when he was a kid when they would see military vehicles going by, he's like, okay, though those aren't cool. But he managed to pull off something with this movie that he brags about to this day. It's actually one of the things he brags about most. Really? Yeah. So to give a little bit of background, Toho usually had to create military scenes with special effects. But in the 80s, they actually had a relationship with the JSDF where they could actually film their training exercises to get real military footage they could use in the films. So like That's cool. Return of Godzilla, Godzilla vs. Biollante, they did stuff like that. Well, that ended in 1992 with Godzilla Mothra, the battle for Earth, or Godzilla versus Mothra, however you want to call it, when they mm -hmm. showed the JSDF firing unprovoked on an ally. That oh, upset man. them. That yeah. upset them a lot. So, Kaneko tried to approach them in 90, 1995 for Guardian of the Universe, but they didn't like the scene that he, uh, you know, one of the scenes for the JSDF in there. So, he changed it a little bit for the final film. And then really? when they saw the final film, the change made them happy. So they basically gave him a free army <laughs> to wow. use a camera too. <laughs> it's all the military stuff in this. So that's real stuff. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's crazy. Yeah. 
And like I what said, do you have? I have an army. Bra- he still brags about it. <laughs> Loki's like, I have an army. He's like, I really have an army. <laughs> I have an actual army. Because <laughs> I'm Conoco. <laughs> Which is interesting because Conoco, uh, speaking of oh, you know, uh, Conoco and, and uh, you know, directorial styles and all of that, he actually said that one of the things he worked on, actually worked on uh, an American film in 1993. It's called Necronomicon. It was an anthology film of short films based on stories by H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah, oh. He did one that was called The Cold and was written by Kazunori Ito, who did the who was the screenwriter on these Gamera films as well. And also, to remind you from the Garden of the Universe episode, Guy also wrote a lot of anime, which you would appreciate. Most prominently, oh. he wrote Ghost in the Shell. Oh, yeah, the yeah, original yeah. Movie. And he said he learned something very important about how Amer- about how the film industry is different in Japan and America. And he said in America, it's more collaborative, weirdly enough. The, uh, mm-hmm. the crew will give suggestions to the directors and stuff like that, where he says in Japan, they don't do that. They just do what they're told. And the way right. he put it is, quote, in America, the director is president, but in Japan, he is emperor. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> That's a bit different. Yes, for sure. <laughs> oh my goodness gracious. Yeah. And there's some interesting style points that he does in this that are a bit different from the other movie. Did you notice the freeze frames? Yeah, that was interesting to me. I was going to bring that up because like there there's been a couple of of series that did that back in the 90s. It was a stylistic choice of, of showing stuff. I know that Neil Gaiman has a book called Oh my gosh, I just lost it. It was a is it the underground? Oh man, this is going to drive me nuts. Uh, uh, Neverwhere. <laughs> he, has, he has a book called Neverwhere. And the BBC did a, did a movie or did a series about it. And that was a, it was a stylistic choice of showing the, you know, showing traumatic moments as if it's just a, cause that's, that's kind of how you see things. Like when you think about traumatic moments, like you see pictures in your head, like you're like, you know, you're like, oh my gosh. And it was emphasizing small moments. And so when they saw them, saw those in this film, that style it's hit or miss for me. Sometimes it's like, okay, that's really good. It's kind of weird sometimes, but it's good. And sometimes, all right, you guys need to stop doing this. The first couple times I thought were really good. I thought that they, when they did that, it was a good way of sto- of, to- of storytelling because what that does is it for- forces you to see things that they want you to see. So like in the subway scene where they're running, it forced you to see the terror in the um, reaction of the SDF and the civilians as they're running away, trying to be rescued from the Legion soldiers. Some of those moments were really great. I thought it was unnecessary though, in the scene where they're, they're in the like upper room with a home girl and they're going through some stuff. And like, he has that flashback memory of something. He's like, Oh, wait a minute. And they go back to like him lighting the, the lighter and it's, you know, flaming up. That was a bit unnecessary in my, well, in my I mind. Can tell, I, I can tell you why they did that. Please do. Uh, thanks to Kyle Gount. That was Conoco's way of reminding the audience of the little hints about what's going on. Those are the right. breadcrumbs. You know, because they're un- trying to unravel the mystery of Legion, because good Lord, they love their science in this. <laughs> yes, Jimmy, I know you love the science. <laughs> you always <laughs> love the science. But, the, you know, so that was their little way. So it was like, hey, remember this? That was a hint. And it's a good it's a good tool at times. I just feel like at times it was unnecessary. Oh, I can understand. Like our, that or wasn't or that or wasn't ex- executed well. Yes. Now, Dallas, I confess to you, I have far more notes on this movie than we have time. 
I'm trying to cherry pick the ones that are best. Uh, that would be uh, best. <laughs> now, one thing I do want to ask you is this, especially as someone who has not seen Gamera 3 yet. Yeah. What did you think of the ending? And by that, I mean when Gamera wins the day. What did I think of it? Yeah. I thought it was cool. Like, I, I thought it was a really great, like, you expect him to win. It was an epic win. Like, it was really epic. I'm not really sure what was happening with him, like, gathering energy, like Goku summoning a spirit bomb. <laughs> kame, kame, <laughs> ha! Or in my mind, it was Shinku Hadouken. <laughs> <laughs> But I thought it was a it was a cool it was it was dramatic it was awesome, I thought it was a good playthrough. I'm curious though what they're going to do though because now that his connection with Homegirl has been lost, Which, I am legitimately curious on how this plays out in the third oh, movie. It does, let me tell you, and that but that is something I wanted to bring that up because Legion does a very good job of being a self-contained movie, except for that ending. Mm. That ending by in isolation comes way out of left field mm -hmm. and you're just like what in the heck is Gamera doing <laughs> what is this why is he going full tilt anime power up time here right what this is not like when he ate fire and guarded the universe where that was something that you know was kind was hinted at and you would remember from the Showa movies because he eats fire but what is this and if you want to call it a problem you can call it a problem because you have to watch Gamera 3 for it to get explained. Really? Yeah. They explain it in Gamera 3, but they don't explain it in this movie. It just happens. What? And then What? Yeah. And then in uh, you also have that final scene where they're at the Winter Festival and they sequel bait really, really hard <laughs> where they're like, well, you know, Gamera might turn on the humans if he thinks they're wrecking, uh, if they're wrecking the Earth. And it was just like, okay. <laughs> Thanks for the ham-fisted ominousness. I, that's great. <laughs> See, I, when they said that, I just... Because there, there have been several films, Japanese films, where it's like this random, like, take care of the Earth. My thing that comes... Like, left field. Just like, we should take care of the planet because it's all we have type of thing. And I thought it was just one of those things that are just like, all right, slap it in here. I mean, it's the 90s. Captain Planet's a thing. I mean... <laughs> Gosh, Captain Planet. <laughs> people are pushing this. This is this is the era of us, you know, being tree-happy individuals. Your mushroom friend over here who just called, he loved this time frame, I'm sure. Oh, but I'm... I'm not sure he remembers that time frame. <laughs> I'm not sure he remembers yesterday. <laughs> I don't know. But I honestly took that as just them just putting that in there. Not that that's a problem. It's just that was a thing that I remember seeing them add in to several Japanese films of, of that era and uh, even American films. Yeah. I'm not, again, it's back in the during this time frame, 96, 95, you and I were like, what, maybe eight, nine years old? Maybe Something 10. Like <laughs> so my memory of what ha was happening worldwide isn't quite there. I remember hearing stories about acid rain or fears of acid rain and junk like that. But I don't know. I, for me, I, I'm so disconnected from that time frame. But I just assumed it was something that threw in there because that's what you did back in the 90s. But yeah. are, you're telling me that that was a, a lead into the third movie? Yes, that pays off in the third movie. Well, all right. Well, I guess I'm going to know what I'm doing tonight on the way home. <laughs> <laughs> the in-flight movie will be Gamera 3, Revenge of Iris. Right. Uh, yeah. Also, Iris is not on the island. We don't trust Iris. 
<laughs> That's good. Uh, basically, Iris is a Final Fantasy boss, just so you know. What? <laughs> Seriously, Iris is a Final Somebody Fantasy Somebody call boss. Squall. We're going to get this handled. <laughs> or Cloud. Or, May just team up with all of them. Yeah, just get all of them. Yeah, <laughs> get them all. <laughs> we'll throw in Sora while we're at it. Sora just got announced <laughs> for Smash Brothers, so why not? <laughs> Q one wing angel while you're at it. <laughs> Actually, one wing angel would be very appropriate for, for Iris, weirdly <laughs> enough. But uh, so, I, uh, if you'll indulge me here, I'm going to put my English major hat on for a few minutes and then we'll talk a bit about the, shall we say, Christmas symbology that's prominent in this film before we move yeah. on to our toku topic but actually one of my favorite lines in this movie has to do with dr dorf's favorite thing the uh flower and that <laughs> is there's a point where the colonel for whatever reason when the one of the salt one of his subordinates says hey it flowered and he says oh what color is it and his subordinate just says i didn't ask we're going to blow it up <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> i was just like this just sounds funny to me. <laughs> I didn't ask. We're going to blow it up. <laughs> if, if this was Henshin Men, that would get the the Kamenacha Award right there. <laughs> One thing that I thought was kind of interesting, because I think this movie, to a certain extent, would be even more terrifying now... Because one of the things they talk about, because what the Legion are doing by going after things like the glass mm -hmm. in the beer warehouse is that they are trying to feed on silicone because they're silicone-based life forms. Right. One of, did you catch one of the things that they said that they also like to eat? They like I, cell phones, for one thing. They will murder people who have cell phones on them. They will go for them first when they because they can see those with their predator vision. <laughs> right. <laughs> But uh, they also like to eat fiber optic cables. Do you realize yeah. how terrifying this would be for most modern people? Oh, we'd Those be things would eat wall. the fiber optic cables, and suddenly they have no phone service or internet. Oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> Worldwide destruction right away. They would lose their minds. Don't worry about <laughs> the electricity. You cut them off from the internet. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> I think that's al that's almost it's. That was a little bit ahead of its time. I mean, that was, you know, the mid-90s. That was kind of the, it was the early days of the information age. And, oh, my gosh. You know, and right. cell phones were just starting to become a thing. Oh, my gosh. People would just, like I said, would just lose their minds. That would be terrifying for a lot of people. Especially Which, all those, especially those Zoomers. Those Zoomers would <laughs> lose it. <laughs> that brings up an interesting question, though. Because, like, there's some things, there's some stories that don't survive time period changes. Like... Some people say you can't do a Death Note movie in modern day because of the difference in technology that we have now versus when Death Note was originally written and produced. And I'm curious with the way that these creatures survive and they do their things, how different would be in modern day in 2021 if they were to redo this with the same mindset of how these creatures work? Do you think it would hold the same fear and doubt or do you think it would play out differently? I think it would play out a little bit differently, and it would just there would probably be even more of them because they have more to eat. Yeah, <laughs> more fiber optic cable, more cell phones. I, I would I would not be surprised if the body count was even higher because everybody has a cell phone now, so they're just going to be murdering everyone. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so then people are like, I have to get rid of my cell phone so that the Legion don't get me. Oh no, I can't, <laughs> must have TikTok. <laughs> but there are some things in this 
I don't know if you've seen Shin Godzilla yet. I love Shin Godzilla. I feel like this movie is a predecessor in a lot of ways to Shin Godzilla. And part of it was like there was a style, uh, there was a scene that was very much like Shin Godzilla where they they just show in subtitles the name and position of a person during a meeting with all of the military officials and they just talk. Right. It's just telling us like this is their name and position and, and this is what they're saying and they're only in that scene. Yeah. But one of the things that is this absolutely fascinating for me because this is the only kaiju movie, not even Shin Godzilla does this. This is the only kaiju movie I can think of that pays lip service to Article 9 of the Japanese Constitution. You know, to be honest, that whole thing, that gave me Shin Godzilla vibes. I'm glad you you mentioned that. Them going into that, going to Article 9 and talking about stuff, like it, it this felt more political based than the last movie yeah. did. Again, because they're grounding it in realism and yeah. they're actually saying like, hey, Article 9 is a thing, but we're activating the self-defense forces because this is an internal self-defense Issue. Yeah. We Do you it. think that's the reasoning why this film series did so well is because it was more grounded, whereas the show era got a little, I little think that, awkward? I think that's a huge part of it. I do think that's a big part of it. And uh, I think it was also because of the tone and how different it is. Right. And, uh, you know, it's just there's a lot of factors that I think went into the success of these movies that I could spend many hours <laughs> taking apart. Uh, but, uh, yeah. So... Like I said, there's a lot of things that I think are a forerunner to Shin Godzilla in that matter, and there's a lot that I could say about Shin Godzilla. Trust me. <laughs> Trust me. Uh, this is a little bit less an English major thing, but we uh, hinted at it earlier. I may as well bring it up. So you had all the kids who were looking at the quote-unquote dead Gamera, and I'm like, mm -hmm. yeah, that's their homage. They're acknowledging that, that the Kennys. Yeah. Yes, including you, Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm glad you felt special watching that scene, too. <laughs> But like I said, Asagi remains the closest thing to it. But at least they're kind of paying attention, uh, kind of paying homage to that. I mean, there's even a scene where a little girl is crying, and her mom says, "Like, what's wrong with Gamera? Is he dead?" And she's telling him, "No, no, he's okay. He's okay." <laughs> Which I think plays into the religious symbology. But we'll get to that in a little bit. Right. And then uh, another line that also kind of relates to it a little bit from the same scene when Gamera wakes up and flies away. And the Magatama bead that Asagi has breaks. And it breaks so hard that she bleeds. It cuts her hand. Right. And the other woman with her says, like, oh, you're bleeding. And she says, Gamera's bleeding too. Yeah. That is a little bit of a loaded line for me. That actually made me kind of stop and pause for a few minutes and just kind of think about that. And again, it's not explained here. You gotta watch <laughs> Gamera 3. But basically what happened in that moment is Gamera severed his connection with her. Mm. He no longer has a connection to humanity at that moment. Right. And I think with the reason she's saying Gamera's bleeding too is because I think it's meant to be metaphorical. She's bleeding because the bead exploded and the, she's lost her the connection. But I think it's also because he had to break it so that right. that in a way is a wounding on Gamera. So believe it or not, Gamera has a character arc in this trilogy. So be prepared for that. Because that's going to play out in, in movie three. Oh, man. Yeah. So I think that's part of it as well. Also, I noticed that it's the younger soldiers. This is a very much like a Shin Godzilla thing, too. The, it's the younger soldier who says things like, hey, we should help Gamera. And the old and the old timers are saying, no, we're not. 
Right. Which is a bit countercultural in Japan. In Japan, if you're older, they assume you're right. Right. Just by the sheer fact that you have lived longer, you are given basically preference. Right. Doesn't matter if you're wrong and the younger guy's right, you get preference because you're older. But but, turn, but if you look at this, it's like the younger guy saying like, "Hey, we should help Gamera," and then what happens? They agree. <laughs> right. Eventually, they agree. <laughs> so here's a question: Like, why do they distrust Gamera? Like the first, like he saves everybody in the first film, and then there's a and we we kind of talked about this in the pre-show. There's a comic book that may or may not be canonical. Oh, that is definitely the the Dark Horse comics not canonical <laughs> because they're insane. <laughs> You and I both know just because something's insane doesn't mean it's not canon. Um, uh, I have not heard any stories about uh, involving a ridiculous <laughs> mad scientist lady with crazy blonde hair who gets mind controlled by Virus. <laughs> yes, yeah, see, if that was the case, Jimmy would know. Besides, Virus is on the board. Well, maybe we should call Virus up. <laughs> I don't want to deal with this octopoidal fury, as he told me. <laughs> I've dealt with it enough as it is. Right, oh. but there's like the the distrust for Gamera, even though he saved them. Like in like in Gamera one, it was multiple times that he stepped in to take care of things and to save them. Like it's really clear, he's like, "I'm here to take care of you." And then like in Gamera two, they're like, "We don't trust this giant flying turtle." Oh, he's not a turtle. They never call him a turtle. I know, but that was what I'm saying. Because apparently, turtles <laughs> don't exist in this universe. <laughs> that is for real. But that is something that Conoco has gone on record as saying: turtles don't exist in my. <laughs> in my gamer universe. I'm like, okay, do <laughs> you have fun with that now? Yeah. <laughs> to end this part of the discussion and transition us into the Toku topic. I want to talk about the, the religious symbology in this movie because, okay. Oh boy, <laughs> <laughs> there's a surprising amount of it. Now, is there necessarily anything meant by it? Unfortunately, I'm going to have to say not likely, Right. This it's kind of like Neon Genesis Evangelion in that regard, <laughs> where they're just using it. There, it's being seen by these Japanese creators as source material, and they right. think it's cool, so they're just going to use it. Mm -hmm. Not unlike how a lot of Western creators will look at things like mythology from foreign countries and just be like, "Ooh, that's cool! I'm going to use it." Not necessarily right. intending anything by it, but it goes basically all the way to the beginning of the movie with this, right? Because you have what in the title sequence because even i was thrown off I was like are they intentionally doing that it's a kanji it's forming a kanji right but it's, it's a cross but it's a cross and it they make it pretty obvious that it's meant to be a cross until it flips over and joins the rest of the kanji to form the title right, and right. what part of the title does it form the name mm -hmm. camera oh <laughs> and then we get to probably the most obvious bit of symbology and that is they freaking quote the bible i have yeah. to tell you i very rarely see the bible get quoted in any japanese tokusatsu mm -hmm. let alone a kaiju movie right. i know this because i actually wrote a co-wrote i should say a, a novella called destroyer where a passage in revelation inspires the name given to the monster in that book because its name was apollyon right but they quote Mark 5.9, which says, I am legion, for we are many. Right. And that's how the monster in this gets its name. We'll unpack that a little bit later. Because <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you, people, if you only know that story from this movie, 
it's a crazy story. We'll get into that because yeah. <laughs> not only are you the founder, co-founder, I should say, of Geek Devotions, Dallas, you're also a pastor. So I am. <laughs> you've got a lot to say about the matter. And I did consult with our resident chaplain here on the island, Reverend Mafune. I should introduce you to. Yeah. Yeah. yeah at some point. <laughs> so another aspect of this, and I talked about this with Chris Cook on One Cross Radio. Call me crazy, but particularly in this one and the next movie, I would dare say Gamer is a Christ figure. Yeah, he's a type for sure. Yeah, that's what I mean. He's he's a Christ figure. Right. He uh, he's the suffering hero in this. He sacrifices himself when the Legion flower explodes, and then can make the argument he's basically entombed. He's covered in like some sort of a like an ash. And everyone thinks he's dead. Going back to right. the, the little girl who was crying, and what does uh, what? And the mom says, "Oh, don't worry, he's just sleeping." And I thought of that verse that said, "You know, it was Jesus speaking." He said, "You know, the, she is not dead but asleep," because that's basically what the mom tells the little girl. And then, interestingly, I mean, yeah, there's a whole crowd of people there, but who are the people who are most prominent in that crowd that basically meet Gamera when he quote unquote resurrects? It's two women, right? That's true. Just like Jesus. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't realize that. And then, you know, when we talk about, we talked about the the, you know, the lashing <laughs> from the energy tendrils. <laughs> right. Uh, the 40 minus one. <laughs> you right. You could say that. There are definitely parallels there. Right. Sure. Is it intended to be some sort of Christological metaphor? No. <laughs> but, You're right. Yeah, but they are there. It's a little undeniable. Yeah, and it, which is really interesting that they would put that in there with with no reason. It, uh, I, I would be curious to hear from the directors why they chose to go this route with going Legion, or was it just a matter of the idea for this character? And they're like, okay, well, what what else can we pull from to make this happen? They probably just thought it was cool. And then, uh, you know, you had the scene where Gamera Gamera bleeds a lot in this. Uh, you can kind of think, you know, like even Kanye Rounds like, oh, the blood of Gamera. They even right. call it out. It's like the blood of Gamera. It's like the blood of Christ because he spins around and splatters it across a building, you know, <laughs> which makes me think of the, you know, the the Passover where you had to put the blood oh, yeah. of, the, of the lamb across your door mm-hmm. and everything. Although in that case, it's like, oh, he's hurt and he's hurt badly. <laughs> yeah. You just had a bunch of <laughs> legions crawling all over him. And the fact that it's Gamera, the Christ figure, battling this otherworldly monster called legion right okay that plays into the story we're going to talk about which to honestly seems like a good as good a point as any to transition into the toku topic let's go hello kaiju lovers and heroes of the internet Nathan Marchand here to invite all of you to join me on the Monster Island Film Vault YouTube channel and the Theology Gaming Twitch channel November 6, 2021 for Extra Life. This is a multi-hour gaming marathon to raise money for local children's hospitals. Why is this relevant to your interests? Because I will be doing a full playthrough of the story mode in Power Rangers Battle for the Grid. Yes, the game's epic adaptation of Kyle Higgins' acclaimed Shattered Grid series for Boom Studios that features the voices of Jason David Frank and several other original cast members. I'll be streaming from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If I finish the story mode before then, you can watch me get pwned in some online multiplayer. Again, 
That's November 6, 2021 on the Monster Island Film Vault YouTube channel and the Theology Gaming Twitch channel. See the links in this trailer description for more info, including where you can contribute to help me reach my donation goal. It's Morphin' Time! For those of you who may not know much about this story, even I will admit, it's a crazy story. Okay, we, we can both admit here, Dallas, as Christians, this is a crazy story. Oh, yeah, this is intense. This is a very intense story. So this is an account of Jesus exercising a group, not just one, a group of demons from, depending on which account you look at from the Gospels, one or two mm -hmm. demoniacs, and then sending them, well, Sending them, from what I was reading, might not be the best way to put it. But then the demons move into a herd of pigs, and then that herd of pigs runs off a cliff into, I believe it was a river, and drowns. Yeah. <laughs> and then the free demoniac, who proclaimed his story to those in the Decapolis, according to theologian Tom Wright, was, quote-unquote, the first apostle to the Gentiles, which I thought was interesting. For those who don't know, Gentile is a term used in the New Testament to describe non-Jewish people. Right. So most of us are Gentiles. <laughs> <laughs> and this account of the demoniac is found in each of the synoptic gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in Matthew, it's in Matthew 8, 28 to 34. In Mark, it's Mark 5, 1 to 20. And in Luke, it is... Chapter 8, verses 26 to 39, and it's called the Synoptic Gospels because the three of them are very similar. The Gospel right. of John is very different in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. but that's why those it, three are called the Synoptic. Right. Well, the, as a whole, they're Synoptic because they all tell the same story, and there are some elements of them in John, just not as much, but those sync up mostly, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, just to give kind of a brief recap of the story, because what I just read was... It didn't really do it justice. Basically, what happens is that Jesus and the disciples come ashore, mm -hmm. and they're met by this apparently one or two demoniacs. Now, some I read a guy who argues like, does it matter if there were two? But oh, but two of the accounts only mention one, just because that's the one who talked the most. But mm -hmm. regardless, he comes to them, and the demons speaking through this man who was running around naked and harming himself and people were scared of him and he had superhuman strength apparently and he could break chains. No one could restrain him. It was terrifying. Mm -hmm. And these demoniacs went right up to Jesus and the demon said through him, was like, have you come to torture us? And all of that sort of stuff. And Jesus asked them, what is your name? Right. And that's when the demons reply with the famous line quoted in the movie, I am legion for we are many, or we are legion for we are many. Right. And then Jesus exercises the demons. And when he, but when he tries to, they said that, you know, our appointed time has not come. Have you come to torture us? And they basically ask him for permission to leave the man and go into, like I said, this herd of pigs. Now you got to understand this. These weren't wild pigs. These were someone's property, which has become right. a point of contention for those interpreting the story. So he gives them permission. They leave the man, they go into the, and then they go into the pigs. And then the events that I mentioned unfold, but mm -hmm. the man, but the demoniacs were free. Finally. You're right. And you know, they were restored to their right minds and were able to rejoin Jewish society 
it's a crazy story. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's a wild story, man. And there's a lot that takes place here that I think a lot of people, they either misunderstood or they misrepresent what really is taking place here. Yeah. It's really a story of freedom for these individuals who take place here. But also there's like, like you said, there's a lot of depth here. Like, again, this is a region that is mostly housing Jewish individuals. Mm-hmm. Not saying there aren't some Gentiles in the area, but for the most part, we can assume that these were probably Jews. And so then you have the questions like, why are these Jews breaking Judaic law by yeah. having pigs? These yeah, were quote, quote, unclean animals. Yeah, I was going to say, that's something that needs to be brought up. There's a lot of cultural stuff in this that I think is lost on a lot of people. Because mm-hmm. one of the key, take into consideration that people might be familiar with modern Jews when they talk about things like what's kosher and what's not. Because in the Mosaic law, the pigs in particular were listed as unclean animals. And mm-hmm. you were, the Jews were told you were not to eat of them. Right. And which is, you know, an interesting thing because if you talk about like the Maccabean revolt, which happened, I believe, in the second century BC, mm-hmm. uh, that was a horrible thing because that was brought about because the then current, I think it was Antiochus, was the Greek, uh, no, this the Roman emperor, excuse me. And he had the audacity, the audacity to go into the Jewish temple and sacrifice a pig to a pagan right. god. Yeah, that which started desecrated. A, that started a whole revolt, which is where the Hanukkah comes from. Because yeah. the, the revolt was actually successful, and they managed to free themselves of outside control for, I think, a couple of decades because of it. Yeah. So Absolutely. they take this whole thing very seriously. So the fact that there's a herd of pigs and the demons go into the pigs, there's a lot of stuff that goes into that. But you mentioned the region. That is actually another thing. So not only the number of demoniacs is called into question about why is there discrepancies in the account, but there's also some talk about the region because there's different names that are used. Mark located in Garasa or the Mm Garasin. That's where the name comes from. And Matthew and... uh, Gadara, which actually I found out that's where the word Gadarene comes from. Mm. Now, neither of these locations are actually by the Sea of Galilee, which is where mm-hmm. they think the miracle took place. And there was, uh, ever heard, I'm sure you've heard of him, the uh, early Christian scholar Origen. Yeah. Yeah. He said that it probably took place in a, pl- in a town called Gergasa. Yeah. And now apparently the consensus is that it took place at a place called Gergesa. Now, I have a little quotation here from wikipedia that addresses the the issue i'll just read it off really quick the differing geographical references to gadara and garasa can be understood in light of the social economic and political influence each city exerted over the region in this light matthew identified the exorcism with the local center of power gadara located about 10 kilometers southeast of the sea of galilee whereas mark identified the event with the regional center of power garasa located further inland. The city of Garassa had been a major urban center since its founding, and during the Roman period, it was the more widely known among the 10-city league known as the Decapolis. Right. So that, I think, is a fair way to uh, address the location issue. Well, again, you also have to realize that these are different guys writing to different audiences, and those different audiences understand certain things. Mm-hmm. Uh, of who they're dealing with. You know, Matthew is writing specifically to Jewish individuals who understand the the region and certain things a little better. Luke is writing to Theophilus, who's a gentleman who is, he's not a Jew. He's not in the area. He sent Luke in to figure out the story of Jesus so he can understand what's happening. Mark, well, he's recounting the stories that were told to him by Philip, 
Mark wasn't present for any of this stuff. So he's just, he's basically ghostwriting for Philip, but keeping his name on it. So when they're writing these things out, they're going, okay, who am I writing to? Okay, well, let me put this here because they'll understand the region better than they will understand this section right here. And so that's part of that. That's some of that, that issues that we run into when we're discussing the quote unquote discrepancies of the scriptures. You have to ask yourself who's writing, who are they writing to, and why are these things here? Why is there discrepancy? Is it a, hey, they're saying a different place? No, he's talking to a group that doesn't understand what this place is. Yeah. And so they have to maneuver around those type of things. Again, most 90% of 99% of your quote unquote discrepancies in the scriptures are very easily understood if we take a moment to step back and look at everything in a in a bigger spance, if you will. Yes, for sure. But I don't know about you, Dallas. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned that you had actually just who was it? Is like somebody in your church or whatever just did a sermon about this. So this is a lot of this is very fresh in your mind. When my I, pastor, my, my, yeah. my, I'm the online media pastor at my church. And so I, I do a lot of stuff. But one of my jobs is I film the online worship gathering that we do for my church. But anyways, Scott, my lead pastor at my church, he just talked about this whole thing with the demoniac and, and how it's interesting what takes place here. And I, I myself just did some digging into it, reading it and how it's, it's crazy because here you have two men who are encapsulated in this situation they are victims of a demonic possession and you know here they are they're freed jesus takes care of it which to be honest if you look at the story of how jesus freed these guys shouldn't mess up the people's mindsets of what they feel like deliverance ministry looks like it doesn't take six hours of somebody sitting there shaking a guy trying to make him throw up and screaming hold on let go hold on let go you don't need all that crap right the power jesus of says, christ compels you the power <laughs> of christ compels you sorry all it took was jesus sending tell him to go he's a get out in the name of jesus be gone it's really the, all it takes for modern day believers who to do this and that's what takes place. But what's saddening to me is here are these men, they're free from being tortured and people are angry. Yes. They're angry at these guys who are free, finally free from something else because maybe they're, they're inconvenienced. Now, again, there's a question of why do these Jewish individuals, which a lot of scholars are looking at, these were probably, there's there's a small, there is a camp out there that thinks that these were probably Gentiles herders in the area, but a lot of the scholars are like, these are Jews. I, I have, found, so let me tell you, I did find some very interesting interpretations about what the heck the, these pigs are doing here. Yeah. I'll tell you that. Interesting. But either way, they're more angry about their inconvenience than the fact that these men who, to be honest, these could have been some of their relatives. These could have been, you know, friends of friends. These are people they've known that they saw were being tortured for years. And yet they're angry that these men are free now because they're inconvenienced because they lost some pigs. Yeah. Which yeah. that, that was kind of the where we were going to with the message my pastor was preaching. But that, it does. It saddens me. Because I see this even in a world where you have people who are struggling, they're trying to get clean from addiction and from all kinds of stuff. And when they finally start to get their life straight, people are almost angry at them or they're they're dismissive of them because now there's an inconvenience. Because now there's a person who's like, hey, I'm getting my life straight. I need help. Now it's like, oh, I don't want to have to help you. I don't want to. Yeah. That ticks me off. Like that really bothers me. It's like, hey, we, we need to be helping people. I know there's a level of like, okay. You've screwed me over once or twice. I don't know about that. I get caution. I totally get that. I respect caution. We need to have that. We need to have what the Bible calls wisdom and discernment. But we do need to be willing to maybe get a little uncomfortable to help people who are new to this thing. Mm -hmm. And again, that's kind of where I go back to this demoniac whole thing. These guys got freedom for the first time in their possibly their entire lives. Instead of people going, man, this is so awesome. 
they were like, oh god, I'm so inconvenient. My pigs are dead. Yeah. <laughs> which you know, it's like which actually like, hey, these- is the rabbit hole that I fell down because I wasn't yeah. sure what you were going to bring to the table, but I started looking some stuff up. And the crazy rabbit hole that I fell down had to do with how this story was used by Christians over the centuries to talk about animal rights. <laughs> I know this sounds crazy, but here's what I found out. A lot of classical theologians say that animals have no moral importance in Christianity, and they will cite this story as evidence of that. Right. So here's something from Augustine. He wrote, quote, Christ himself shows that to refrain from the killing of animals and destroying of plants is the height of superstition for judging that there are no common rights between us and the beasts and trees. He sent the devils into a herd of swine and with a curse withered the tree on which he found no fruit, end quote. Mm-hmm. And then Thomas Aquinas, another classical theologian, argued that the story showed that Jesus' primary concern, I'll agree with him on this, was with men's souls, here's the part I don't necessarily agree with, and not their bodies or property, including animals. Mm-hmm. And some modern-day Bible commentators such as Mark Driscoll, you know, Mark Driscoll is not necessarily <laughs> very well-liked anymore, also hold this view. Here's something else for you, Dallas. Mm-hmm. This story is one of the reasons that the famous atheist Bertrand Russell cites as why he's not a Christian. Because of the pigs? Because he sees it as cruel since the uh, quote-unquote omnipotent Jesus could have just simply made the demons go away. (laughs) But instead, he sent them into the pigs, and that's how he puts it. He sent them into the pigs, and the pigs died. Right. Now, I, I read some responses to that that said, like, the demons actually say our time of judgment hasn't come. And earlier in in those Gospels, it is said that Jesus could not do a mighty work in that area because of people's unbelief. Yeah, I'm not sure I, that's a great response either. I think that my man's just nitpicking. You know, there is there is a difference. I'm not part of the whole camp of like, you know, PETA's the greatest thing ever. They're pretty terrible of an organization the way they treat a lot of things. But I will say this. We are called as believers, to be good stewards of what we have in front of us. The first job of man, according to the Bible, was to steward what was before us, which was animals and the livestock, or in, in the plants, the garden. And so there is a level where we need to be good stewards of that. We need to take care of animals and plants and the, and the earth around us, yes. But at the same time, we have to understand the fact that they are there for us. Like, animals are food. That's, that's what they're for. Yeah, I mean, although... There's some interesting arguments, and I will admit I pondered this sometimes, but there mm-hmm. are those that argue that meat-eating is a product of Adam and Eve sinning right, in the garden, that it didn't exist before. Now, I think they're inferring a lot. They're this inferring the, a whole lot. The, the, the verse the that same they use for that, that is would... Genesis one twenty nine that says where God says, I have given you all the plants of the garden that you may eat from you know, and the fruit and all of that sort of stuff. And I'm like, that's sure. inferring a lot. <laughs> yeah. It is inferring a lot. But these are the same people that are going to infer that, you know, by that same logic then that we shouldn't be wearing clothes. We shouldn't run around naked. I'm still not a fan of this ridiculous pink jumpsuit that I have yet to get the board to reverse. Right. The mandate that we have to wear the, uh, these things. But, you know, 
It's better than the alternative, admittedly. Right. Well, I mean, I appreciate you wearing pants, Nathan. I want you to know that. And Jimmy, I appreciate you wearing pants too, sir. Although, Jimmy, I need you to hold off with the tight t-shirts that you wear. Those are just a little too much. You don't need no thirst trap, okay, buddy? But anyways, uh, <laughs> again, we're called to be good stewards what we have. But at the same time, I mean, I like a good burger. You know, that's just, it's just the way it is. And yes, there is a difference between man and an animal. Plain and simple. Yeah. There is. Yeah. And, and that um, was the thing that a lot of the stuff I was looking at was talking about, about the, I think the way they were putting it was the human centric beliefs of Christianity that didn't seem to make a lot of allotments when it came mm-hmm. to animals. And that's where a lot of contention is coming from. Now mm-hmm. I've seen some interesting responses to try to explain this. None of mm-hmm. it nearly as articulate, uh, not art, I shouldn't say articulate, but none of it kind of uh, nearly as, you know, kind of down to earth as what you're talking about. Simple. Uh, there was one, and I think there's a little bit of backing for this. I think you could make this argument that part of what's going on in here is that the uh, pigs are supposed to be a reference to the unclean and unfaithful people, particularly the Romans. I mean, the fact that you know, a lot of the language that they argue, you know, with like the commands that Jesus is giving to the demons or, or uh, in the original Koine Greek that the Gospels were written in was mm-hmm. a militaristic in nature. Even the demon's name, we are legion. Mm-hmm. He said, "Like the readers, the ancient, you know, the ancient readers at those time at that time would recognize that because the Roman Empire controlled Israel and most of the world at that point, and a legion was the largest contingent in the Roman military. It could be upwards mm-hmm. of about five thousand soldiers, sure, plus cavalry. It was right. massive. Yeah. So the, some would argue that it's in reference to that and saying that Jesus is more powerful than the empire that is right. controlling." But that would also, that would then, though, require you to go from the standpoint that the story that you're reading here is not an actual story, but more of an allegory of things. That Jesus did not, there was no actual demoniac. There was no actual person who was possessed by demonic, by demons. And so that that goes down a whole nother theological conversation as to whether or not we can trust the scriptures and the accuracy. And again, I'm one of those affirmers that like we should read scriptures in context and according to type. You know, the Psalms are poetry. We should read them as poetry. But, you know, again, the fact that you see this in the three different gospels, the fact that Luke records this, that should give us a whole lot of emphasis of going. This is what this actually happened. Luke was more likely a medical doctor. He didn't do a lot of poetic stuff. He was like, this is what happened. Yeah. Deal with it. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. Now, there's some other uh, kind of wild takes on some of the stuff that they use to try to explain some of this. And I think they're also using it in the broader sense to try to get Christians interested in animal rights. Mm-hmm. There was a gentleman named Michael W. Fox who actually said uh, he was uh, quoting uh, Ephesians 4 6 which usually gets translated as one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. He has suggested that it should be translated within all, which is weirdly pantheistic. Very. Yeah. Not sure. I like that one. Then, you know, obviously there are people who argue that Adam and Eve are vegetarians. So that's how things should be. And meat eating is a product of the fall. However, (laughs) the prophet Isaiah did mention in a vision of the future that humans will live well with animals and you in Isaiah 11, six through eight and Moses, which became a point of contention with Jesus and, and some of the, the Jewish religious elite in his time talking about, you know, taking care of an, of your oxen on the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. So 
the Old Testament law is actually saying, hey, there is a modicum of care that must be given to your animals. It is expected. Mm-hmm. And sure. Proverbs 12.10 echoes this, saying that a righteous man cares for his animals. Yeah. And other, the other thing that's interesting to go along with those, uh, go along with those lines is that, yes, as you brought up, meat eating is a thing. You know, you like yourself a good burger. And this was interesting. I hadn't thought of this until I looked it up. The Mosaic Law doesn't forbid meat eating, but it mm-hmm. offers a little bit of justification for it because, you know, the taking of a life, in, especially mm-hmm. in Judaism, was viewed as the prerogative of God, whether it was right. human or otherwise. So the Mosaic Law required that the lifeblood of an animal be drained before it was eaten. Mm-hmm. And one of my sources argued that that was because it was believed that the life of an animal belonged to God. And Jesus himself ate fish and probably meat, you know, given what we understand of uh, Jewish religious festivals, you know, right. like the Passover. And he also used illustrations about the Sabbath, advocating for the care of oxen, like I said. And also, let's not forget the parable of the Good Shepherd looking for the lost sheep. Mm-hmm. It's basically, I say all of that to say that it's a, it is more nuanced and complicated than I think a lot of people realize. And if we're talking about this story in reference mm-hmm. to that, and then early church fathers like Plutarch, who was around in the first century, advocated for the ethical treatment of animals, as you were hinting at, just as an ends unto themselves, as opposed mm-hmm. to the Greek idea that, uh, as Pythagoras would argue, so like the Pythagorean theorem, same guy. <laughs> that they are repositories for human souls. Mm-hmm. So it's it's more just you do it because you are commanded to be kind. <laughs> yeah. You know? Sure. Yeah, that, that, was, that would be his argument. But there's a lot of things, like I said, that are going on with that. We mentioned that you know pigs were unclean animals, and mm-hmm. so they could be representative of a lot of things. Why are the local Jews potentially having a herd of pigs around when they shouldn't in there's a lot of stuff going on in there. Probably more than we can unpack in this podcast. Yeah, there's honest. a whole lot going on here. That's basically all I have on the subject. If you have anything else to add. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, again, it's just, we've kind of covered the spans of it. You know, what is happening with the demoniac? There's a variety of theological conversations we can have just dealing with this one particular story of the demoniac. Now, again, like we said, does it, how does it link back to Gamera? I think it's just a matter of it. There's many there, which, again, has a whole bunch of aspects to it. With my show, Geek Devotions, we take small things like this and to bounce off into theological conversations like what you and I had. Mm-hmm. One thing I'll point out with Gamera is that Gamera had to eliminate Legion as a whole. Like, it was gone with that mega cannon that came out of his chest. That's what it took. And to be honest, that's a great illusion even to to us as individuals that when we make this lifestyle change and we're getting free from sin and we're getting free from addictions, we have to eliminate a lot of things from our lives. That's a burden. That's something that takes place. And so Gamera, he had to eliminate the mother legion completely. Otherwise, this would return. This would come back. You'd have another legion flower, if you will. Yes. (laughs) And things would get out of hand once again. And so again, that's just another illusion that we could pull from the, the movie as a whole is you know, if there's something in your life that is destructive, maybe there you need to remove the root of it mm. completely. <laughs> the root of the legion flower. <laughs> <laughs> it must be exercised by Gamera. <laughs> <laughs> the power of Gamera compels you. <laughs> the power. Okay, I'm sorry. Before I get 
a random lightning bolt out of nowhere. <laughs> or my <Yeah>. Hennessy. <laughs> let's uh, <laughs> let's uh, move into the housekeeping. All right. I have to say that was tremendous fun. Thank you so much for everything that you brought to that, Dallas. And yeah. I am happy to say, you know, since we're talking about expelling the destructive things from your life, I don't have to read any board propaganda because they're kind Yay. of in chaos right now. <laughs> they might be getting, shall we say, exercised from the island soon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, take that, guys. <laughs> ha! But Just I do have. Be careful what comes back, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I do have a little bit of listener feedback that relates back to our previous camera episode that uh, I want to make sure I bring up. Let's go. And that would be from Kyoi Toshi. She writes in, says, Hi, Nathan. I thought I might address something I read on your blog. Well, it was Jimmy's blog about the Japanese title of Gamera Guardian of the Universe, which I hope you will find interesting. As you probably already know, the term translation is based around written works while interpretation is based around spoken language. So I'll, hmm. I'll be using the terms for translation. Guardian of the Universe's original title, she writes out the kanji for me in this email, which is Gamera Daikaiju Kuchu Kesen. I might be saying that wrong. My apologies. <laughs> which can indeed be expressed as giant monster midair battle. But that's just <coughs> a verbatim transcript, something you'd get from Google Translate or looking it up in a kanji dictionary. A translation hmm. will reflect the actual mood, meaning, and intent of the words. So, in the, this case, the translation Gamera Giant Monster Dogfight is actually better. So, Matt, as in Matt Frank, is correct, too. He probably had one of his Japanese friends translate the title. Just oh. take a look at the Japanese pre-release poster, and it makes it obvious, which is true. If you look at the Japanese poster, it definitely looks like a dogfight. To be an effective translator, you not only have to have a good knowledge of both languages, but also both of their respective cultures, slang, phraseology, history, and how words are actually used, rather than what their strict meanings are. And Japanese words can also have different meanings, especially when kanji start getting combined to make different words. This is why Google Translate and machine translators give out nonsense garbage results a lot of the time. It's also why you see several different English translations for the same set of kanji slash kana. Hmm. If I were translating, and she gives the title again today, I might even go Gamera Kaiju Dogfight. This is because <laughs> over the last 10 or so years, Kaiju has become a Japanese loanword for English speakers. That's definitely true. <laughs> Since English speakers use it in the sense of giant monster rather than the Japanese use of strange monster. As you know, we use Daikaiju for specifically making something a giant monster, although Kaiju is more and more becoming the default for giant monster here too. It works out great. Have a nice weekend. <laughs> yes. Cool. Thank you, Kiyoe, for that wonderful education. And that is definitely true. It's something that I think I've hinted at a lot of times. I've kind of talked about indirectly, but that is something you definitely need to take into consideration when translating something because, you know, you may have to transliterate it as opposed to translate it because, yeah, a lot of the nuance can be lost unless sure. you actually know more about the language than just the strict meaning of words. Right. And the situation. Yes. So, yes, perhaps I will say Kaiju Dogfight 
actually does sound like it would have been a better translation of the title, but admittedly, you can't go wrong with the hyperbolic guardian of the universe. I, so I got to give that to ADV. I have to yeah. give that to ADV. <laughs> so it may, it's a completely different title, but it works. And I think it works <laughs> quite well. All right. So with that, Dallas, it's time sure. to move on to one of my favorite segments of the show. One that I haven't been able to do for a couple of episodes because I was in orbit. <laughs> that is the Patreon shout outs. Let's go. I've been waiting to do this. Go show. Travis Alexander! Michael Hamilton! Danny Jamana! Eli Harris! Chris Cook! Bex! Damon Noise! The Cell Cast! <laughs> Elijah Thomas! And finally, Tofu Fury! Oh my gosh. Do you not feel invigorated? (laughs) Do you feel more powerful now? (laughs) Always. (laughs) Yes, Jimmy, I'm sure that the speakers may not necessarily feel more powerful right now. But... Rest in peace, headphone users. <laughs> uh, we may have to uh, issue some apologies for any possible deafness that this segment causes. <laughs> not that they can hear those apologies. That, this is true. This is true. I am destroying my audience of potential listeners. oh man anyway (laughs) moving on got to preview the next couple of episodes so obviously since we had two in a row that were not gamma movies we have to play a little bit of catch-up so the next episode will be the conclusion to this epic trilogy with gamma 3 revenge of iris and I will do my best to see if I can get the original tourist crew back together for it, despite all the shenanigans that went down with my guest invitations. <laughs> Otherwise, I don't know. I might give you another call, Dallas. We'll see what happens. <laughs> we'll see what happens. <laughs> we'll see Let what me know. happens. I'll get uh, the Dragon Sword out here. Oh, yeah. Hey, calm ah! down up there. Calm oh, down. Oh, yeah. Calm down. Calm down. Calm down. Although you may have to stay here for a little while to meet Michael, because I know he'll be a little <laughs> jealous. But anyway, and then uh, speaking of Michael, <laughs> we'll be getting back to Godzilla Redux and we're getting to the first ever sequel to the original Godzilla from 1954 with Godzilla Raids Again. And my guest for that episode will be Michael Hamilton. Uh, the hey. MIFV Max member just got a shout out because this was his first Godzilla film. Oh, that's cool. Yes. Very interesting, I have to say. Godzilla Raids Again. He's the only person I know who started with Godzilla Raids Again, so I'll be curious. That is interesting. Yeah, I'll be curious to hear his story with that. That explains a lot. I I listen to Kaiju Weekly, and that explains a lot about about his view on things. (laughs) Is that good or bad? (laughs) 
It's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. Just uh, I, I got the frame of reference now. I see where he's coming from. Yes, yes, yes. And I now, like him and Travis. They're good guys. Yes, yes, they are. And now, Dallas, no yes. episode of The Film Vault would be complete without my guest doing shameless self-promotion. Regale us. Yeah. So I am co-founder of Geek Devotions, the show from Devoted Geeks who are devoted to letting people know they're loved. My wife and I take geek pop culture arms like movies, video games, comic books, anime, and we use to let people know they're loved. We care about them. Every show that we do, we we tell people, it's right at the top of the of the show, before we even get to the main content, we tell them, look, look if you turn this off right now, just know this, we love you, we care about you, there is a plan and purpose for your life. Don't give up. And that's our main thing, is just letting people know, especially in the geek community, but anybody that comes across our path, that they're cared for. Because there's a lot of people out there that just feel like they're not cared for, that no one loves them and so our mission is to change that to let people know they cared about them then specifically know that god loves them we are a christian ministry and that's our our main thrust out of that we have a lot of things we do a weekly youtube show where we put out devotionals every friday at four o'clock we do bible studies on tuesdays on our facebook page and then afterwards on twitch we do what we call play and pray which is kind of our evangelism arm where we uh we go on twitch we play video games we we chill and we talk to people but our main thing is we tell people like if i'm in the middle of playing fortnite and you pop in my chat and there's something you need to talk about or there's something that you're struggling with or maybe you just need prayer, I will stop the game. I don't care if I'm in Fortnite. I'll stop in the middle of the field, let them headshot me. I don't care. And I'll pray with you. And I care because while we love our video games, we care about you more. That's the main th- point of it. We also have a podcast called Calm Talk by Geek Devotions, which is more of a general geekery thing where we talk about different things. Within that same RSS feed, we have a show called Bees, Views, and Reviews, where a buddy of mine reviews family-friendly and sometimes faith-based comics. And then we have another show that takes place on that same RSS feed called Primitive Rhythm Machine. That is one of the best podcast titles I've ever heard. <laughs> right. <laughs> but John Haru and also Steve McDonald, who you know from Ben Avery's many shows. Yes. But they talk about different Christian music from different Christian genres or different genres. So they've covered everything from a variety of styles of, me- of metal to just some personal music that's like the impact of their lives growing up. So great show. And then I just started a whole nother podcast that's part of the Geek Devotions Network. It's a Geek Devotions production called The Bottom Shelf, where myself, John Haru, and Kevin, the Dapper Man himself from Dapper Man Reviews, we take a look at movies that are critically known as bad, and we ask ourselves, are they really that bad? Or there's some merit to them. So we review everything from Plan 9 from Outer Space. Oh, yeah. To, oh, man. I li- <laughs> I've listened to most of that. And uh, wow, you started with a doozy. <laughs> we did, man. To uh, The Last Airbender, to Mars Attacks. Yeah. And believe me, we have, some, we have some movies coming down the pipeline that I am excited to watch and suffer watching. <laughs> Are you admitting that you are a masochist? (laughs) Uh, No, I'm not. But there's some movies are just fun to watch. (laughs) Uh, Yes. And you've actually had me on an episode of Com Talk. Interesting. I have. It was like, oh man, when was that? A year and a half ago or something like that? It was to Mm -hmm. talk about Galaxy Express 999. Yeah. That's almost a two parter, also. Yeah. uh, Which actually does have kaiju connections that I remember bringing up. (laughs) Mm hmm. There will be links in the show notes below for you guys to check out that episode. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. <laughs> no, yeah. Put more work on you. No, put more work on Jimmy. Jimmy, make this happen. Yes. Yeah, you're in charge of the show notes. Make it happen. 
Well, part of the show notes, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I usually handle the show notes. Yep. But hey, if you want to find us, you can find us at geekdevotions.com. That's kind of the central hub for everything. Yeah, yeah. And I would be remiss, Travis would be very disappointed with me if I did not mention on my part that you should check out our spinoff podcast, Henshin Men, a yes. show about the appreciation of Japanese superheroes and their high-flying and high-kicking adventures. We are going through the original Common Rider right now. We're about, I think, uh, as of this broadcast, about 12 episodes. No, 12, 13, excuse me, 13 episodes deep. And uh, we're only about a quarter of the way through Common Rider because Common Rider is a long show. <laughs> Dude, you guys are going like, like when you guys first announced that show, I was like, okay, cool. And I thought they're going to be like, you know, quick little synopsis. You guys like, you guys go deep into these conversations about Common Rider and the different aspects of the show. So yes. I'm, I'm actually pretty impressed with it. You guys are actually, you're 13 episodes in, but as far as actual episodes of Common Rider, you guys have watched and covered 25 episodes uh-huh. of Common Rider mm-hmm. out of the that, 98. <laughs> yeah, I mean you guys are you guys are hustling through it, so I'm impressed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's in large part because of Travis who was spreading the gospel of Common Rider. So <laughs> we joke about that a lot actually. <laughs> uh, I mean, my pseudo sister thinks Common Riders are dreamy, so well, I mean, it happens. Uh, so she she's an avid fan. Like, what can I say? <laughs> Although she's not on the island right now, is because she kind of got kicked off. You guys need to do yeah. a special edition segment where you guys cover the American Common Rider pilot. Fast oh, Rider. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we thought about it. <laughs> Just to see what heck comes out of that. Oh man, we we have thought about it. Although it uh, that show actually technically started on Power Rangers. Yeah. Yep. It truly did. Because I, I remember because I, I saw it happen and I was like, dude, I want this show. And then the, and then you watched happened. it and you're like, nope. <laughs> Dang it. Yeah. Dang it, America. Yeah. All kinds of nope. Anyway, thank you once again, Dallas, for joining us here. And now, Jimmy. I have an appointment to keep, so cue credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nate Marchand. If you enjoy the show and want to join the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Your message could be read on a future episode of the show. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Monster Island Film Vault. And on Twitter, where our handle is at TheMonsterIsla1. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASAJimmy. And the Monster Island Board of Directors at MonsterIslaBOD. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations! And be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, and Twitch. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wanderer on the Offensive Live Edit by B33J, Sarax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack Battle with the Colossus and The Open Way Battle with the Colossus by Koatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus. All film and audio clips belong to the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended or implied. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and or Podchaser to spread the word about the show. You can also support us by joining MIFV Max on Patreon. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara!
Onichiwa, Nate-san. It is good to see you back from outer space. It's good to be back, Reverend. It was... quite the adventure, I'll say. I hope to hear about it soon. Perhaps over a few cups of matcha tea. I'd love to. And may I say, I'm beyond glad to see the board wasn't able to kick you off the island. As I said before, I answer to a much higher power. The board is simply lucky they did not invade this sacred place to make me leave, or they would have felt the wrath of Kenny. <laughs> you and your Mitama no Ken. Now I assume you are here because of my message about Karun-san. Yes. Ah, that poor woman. She has been here since before you were shot into orbit. She is haunted by guilt, and has done nothing but shame herself for what she has done as Miss Perkins. She refuses to speak with anyone and barely eats or drinks. Why do you think she came here? I am not certain. Perhaps she saw the chapel as a sanctuary, with both your robot companion, Jet Jaguar, and myself as protectors. This place is defensible. But also, Captain Gordon and his security forces know better than to intrude here. Well, hopefully she'll listen to me. Go with Kami-sama, Nate-san. Hi, Karun. I'm sorry. Don't. I didn't come here for another apology. But it wasn't just you I heard. It was... Everyone. Jimmy. Raymond Borton. Chet. Even your sister. Pseudo-sister. And I don't know how you can say that. She looked up to you. You probably helped her become a better superheroine. <sighs> no. Miss Perkins helped her. And she was a lie. She was a part of me I thought I'd left behind a long time ago. Miss Perkins was hardly astronomer. Tell that to the first-degree burns I gave you on your arm. Okay, so maybe she was astronomer light. <sighs> I'm sure the Reverend has told you this a hundred times since you've been here. But my faith tells me that we all have a dark side we try very hard to bury. And the funeral isn't ending on this side of heaven. <laughs> Astronomer, Miss Perkins, whatever name you want to use, she'll always be a part of you. But she isn't you. Not anymore. Tell that to my brother, Andros. He's still angry I tried to reform the Psycho Rangers before coming here. The only reason I was able to visit him on Earth a few years ago was because his wife, Ashley, insisted. Is that when you came to the island? Yes, it was supposed to be this weekend getaway, but I had to disguise myself to come here. My infamy as the Princess of Evil reaches farther than my exploits as a ranger. But while I was here, I just couldn't not notice something was wrong. Something just below the surface. But Andros and Ashley didn't believe me, so it was up to me to figure it out. Let me guess. You started snooping around, and it evidently led you to the board. It did. And obviously, the board wasn't going to pass up the chance to have Astronema under their thumb. They knew I'd see through the overt control. I suffered under it before, and the monks of KO-35 helped me train my mind to resist. 
That's why they had to go the subtle route with the influencers. They made me think I wanted to stay on the island, and after I don't know how many months, they convinced me I was a different person by bringing a bit of astronomer out of me, and I became their mouthpiece. I forgive you. You, you what? You heard me, and I'm sure at least a few other people here will tell you the same. You haven't been entirely yourself for God only knows how long. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do, as the Apostle Paul says and all that. Plus, if anyone tries to press charges, well, I'm friends with a very good lawyer. Thank you, Nate, but I don't think my brother will be as forgiving about this or (laughs) our other problems. You won't know until you ask. Besides, did file a missing persons report about you. That counts for something. You're right. I'd better go do that. And then I'm going back to KO35 to meditate with the monks. I need to make sure the board's influence is purged. You're always welcome to come back and visit the island. I'll vouch for you. Thank you, Nate. It's good to know I have friends on Monster Island, despite everything. You're welcome. But if I might be a raving fanboy for just a moment? Oh, no. Could you, you know, perchance, bring your big living robot cat with you next time? I ask because Jimmy wants to take it for a spin, you know, to learn a thing or two about giant robotics. And I'm sure you, a certain animal-loving magical girl, and a former go-ranger turned lawyer wouldn't mind riding along. Maybe. I'll consider it. Yes! But only if you're still wearing that cute pink jumpsuit when I come back. (laughs) Hey, you know what? Jimmy has two mechs in his garage already, so... (laughs) Now I see where Jessica gets it. I'm insulted. Too bad, because it was a compliment. Well, darn. See you around, Nate. Sayonara, Karun. And Godspeed. <laughs>